Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we, year by year, explore the movies, music, and TV that most evaded our lives. I'm your host, Aggressive Sleeper, Rod, and I'm joined by... The Queen of the Night, Jess. Ooh, that's the name of a song that we're going to talk about tonight. I don't know. Hey, I was, it was either going to be that or um, I'm the one that paid you. <laughs> that was a, That's a good one, too. <laughs> All right, so um, if you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, what we do here is we have looked at a list of every music album released in the year 1992, my, my birth year, um, and we've decided which one each of us had listened to the most in our lives. We do this with movies. We do this with TV shows. This is our music episode for 1992. So Your favorite, just in time for your 1992. Yeah. Hey, we get to talk about my favorite band of all time and arguably their best album. <laughs> arguably. I think it's, it's up there, definitely. <laughs> I'm pretty excited for that. But yeah, um, we're going to start with Jess's album. And uh, as we go into this, this is another one of those you know, grand divides where uh, we see the differences between us as people. Jess always leans R&B. Not always. Pop. But mostly. And I tend to lean towards rock and metal. That's uh, very true. Things, not, things have not changed in 1992. <laughs> uh, but we're going to start with Jess's album of 92. And uh, released November 17th, 1992. The soundtrack for the motion picture of the same name and the best-selling soundtrack album of all time. We have The Bodyguard original soundtrack album by Whitney Houston. Take Wait, it away, Whitney. Is... What? This is what? This is the the highest selling soundtrack. Yes. That's insane. Wait, uh, it's uh, not that it's bad. That's just an insane factoid. I can't think of any other soundtrack album that would like, like Shrek. I don't know. I mean, Into the Spider Verse had a pretty yeah, nice but soundtrack. I mean that did, that doesn't that didn't hasn't existed for thirty years. That's okay. You know, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I can't. I, I really can't think of any other out soundtrack album that would like even cats. come close. Like I'm trying to think of like is there cats? A, cats. That's not a motion picture. It, 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 it unfortunately <laughs> is now. But it wasn't when in the 80s or whatever. Anyway, yes, this is the Bodyguard. Uh, Jess's album, 1992. Our first soundtrack album, really. Yeah. Um, I, I like. I set the the rule that like soundtrack albums where it's like various artists contributing really don't count, especially if. It's a soundtrack album of already existing songs, right? right? But if a majority of the soundtrack or all of it is attributed to one artist, it's all new material recorded for that album, I think it counts. Okay. Purple Rain by Prince would have counted. No. And, and in fact did count. <laughs> we don't count that. That is a dark <laughs> episode. <laughs> um, or, you know, and Prince has a bunch of random uh, movie soundtracks that he did. That's true. Under the Cherry Moon, anybody? But yeah, we got Whitney Houston here. Um, can you tell us why is bo the Bodyguard uh, your album? Is is there a history there? I saw the movie once, and by default, heard all the songs. But you had heard these, like especially the one I just played. Like you, yeah, had heard that yeah, before. yeah. It, <laughs> the songs on this album are kind of ubiquitous. Yes. Is that, am I using that word correctly? It is. It is. And I think, uh, especially, and I will always love you is. Even I had heard it. Yeah. I knew that high note that she hit. It was like, every, everyone's no, everyone's heard that high note. That's like the gold standing of vocals right there, right? <laughs> that is very much what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a, a B-52's repeat here. Because yeah. just as in 1989, when we read through 
all of the albums of 1989 and Jess said, I haven't heard any album that I haven't heard more than one song from any of these albums. Same thing happened with these 92 albums. Yeah. And I think that's the only reason you like we looked at Bodyguard we, because at first we went past it. It was like, oh, it doesn't count. I, I had I had assumed it was just a generic soundtrack album before I realized, oh, it's really a bunch of newly recorded songs by Whitney Houston. Yeah. <laughs> There's new material on this yeah. album. Um, but yeah, we almost had to listen to freaking Baby Got Back. No, it wasn't this, this year. Yes, it, it was. No, it wasn't, because I don't have it written down no, as, think, my, as my as uh, my runner-up. Yeah, I, I I think that was the year, and I said, there's no way we're listening to Sir Mix a lot. <laughs> like, that's no way. And again, it's like, there's no way you have heard, you haven't, there's not an album that exists from this year that you hadn't heard more than one song from. So. And there, that still would have been true, though. That would have been true. Except for this album. Thanks, Whitney. This album that made him change the rules of the game. <laughs> it's fine. This was a very interesting uh, deep dive into whatever this is. So, <laughs> you want to talk about the bodyguard? Okay. All right. So, uh, we I talked about the history of Whitney Houston in our 1985 episode where Jess's her, her Jess's album was Whitney's debut album. Yeah. So Whitney. I've, I've already talked about Whitney getting discovered at a show, you know, and a record executive bet his boss that hey. By the time Whitney stops singing, if every woman in that club is not standing on their feet, you don't have to sign her. Dang it all, they all stood up. <laughs> uh, so we have, we've already, like Whitney's a star mm-hmm. from from the from the outset. So um, I have a little bit of history from that point on. All right, with the release of three award-winning records and a string of hit singles, Whitney Houston had become one of the biggest R&B and pop stars in the world by the year 1990. Get it, girl. Uh, she cemented her superstardom by performing the United States National Anthem at 1992 Super Bowl. That's the <laughs> the performance, the one where she's like, oh, oh. I don't think I've ever seen that performance. But you've, you've heard, like, I feel like every female vocalist who sings the, the, the National Anthem after Whitney tries to sing it like Whitney, you know? Uh, so say can you Trying to get see? all the... <laughs> trying to get those runs in. Yeah, just modulating their voice she's, <laughs> she's just going all out it's like that whitney started that 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 performance earned widespread critical acclaim and landed on landed a top 20 spot on the billboard charts her recording of the national anthem oh, wow. was a billboard charting song that's i mean god bless america <laughs> good pr for america <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's go back in time shall we ooh, ooh, 1975 ooh, ooh. That was her travel music. <laughs> 1975. Screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan, now best known for his work on Star Wars. Star Wars. Oh, no. Uh, finished a screenplay about a female singer who falls in love with her bodyguard. And this was before he even had any, you know, even touched the Star Wars script. <laughs> this is like early days Lawrence Kasdan. Um, after being shopped around Hollywood for two years and 67 rejections. Wow. The Bodyguard was optioned by Warner Brothers in 1977 for $20,000. Okay. I mean, keep on trying until you sell it, right? Yep. yep. Uh, the script was rewritten many times over the next 15 years and was attached to different actresses, including Diana Ross and Whoopi Goldberg. What? Whose characters were in various occupations. So it, w- it probably wasn't even a singer at one point. That, okay. Who knows what Whoopi Goldberg I mean, Whoopi Goldberg can sing. Can she? Yeah. Okay. S- Sister Act 2? Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Diana Ross seems like the, the Whitney Houston of her day, I guess. Yeah, we watched The Wiz. The Wiz, yeah. All right, finally, in 1991, actor Kevin Costner expressed interest in the project and was thus cast as the title character. 
He had the clout to get that thing off the ground. Kevin, what interested you in this? He had he was friends with Lauren Caston. Lawrence Caston. Oh, Kasten. okay. So it was they had was worked a- together. Lawrence Caston had directed him in a film, and he said, "Hey, Lawrence, let's work together again on that script you wrote." Oh, he was being a nice friend. Being a good friend, yes. Because so. there's no other reason why you would be interested in this. <laughs> yeah, and thus, as the film was being like being in pre-production, uh, Whitney Houston who had turned down several film projects already, signed on to play the superstar singer character in her first starring film role. All right. So this is Whitney Houston's film debut. Were there any notes as to the movies that she turned down? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really like look into that. Cuz uh I'll be looking in that after. <laughs> because I'm like, okay, but what did you pass up on? <laughs> right. Why this, Whitney? Why is this the one? <laughs> she wanted that Oscar. We'll talk about that. Oh, dear. <laughs> Houston performed six songs for the film, all of which made their way onto a soundtrack album called The Bodyguard Original Soundtrack Album. All right. And uh, Houston and her longtime producer, Clive Davis, served as co-producers on the album. And uh, it sounds like it was a pretty easy you know, thing to, you know, once you're in the movie and you agree to write songs for it, it was just like, she got those songs out the door. Makes sense. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's... That's the making of the bodyguard. I feel like other than the making of the film, it sounds like the making of the soundtrack was pretty cut and dry, pretty easy. Mm. Whitney's a professional. Yeah. So she had a hand in all the songs. Yes. Well, I mean, except the ones that were covers, but okay. Yep. She was, she was co-executive producer on all this stuff. So she was her own boss in a way. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that's the bodyguard. Heads up, we watched the film The Bodyguard, just to have some added context for some of these songs. <laughs> uh, can you describe that experience? <laughs> um, it definitely wasn't a forced experience on your side. You love to spend that time with your wife. It was... I, I don't regret watching it. It was very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it's not a good movie. Oh, no, it's no, not a no, good it, movie. It's, it's laughably bad in yeah. some places. Hey, just, just don't... Mom, don't text me. If you think I'm wrong, you're wrong. The movie's not good. <laughs> it's not. But it's very silly. In some places, it's so serious that it is silly. Yeah. It takes itself very seriously. Yeah, it's totally... I don't know. It's it's an experience. I'm not saying don't watch it. It's a fun movie night movie, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. We, we've picked out four songs. And I think, like, the, in some cases, the most noteworthy songs, especially for like the plot of the film. So mm-hmm. as we discuss these songs, we'll also describe the plot of the movie, um, maybe a little you know factoids here and there. Spoilers! Spoilers! Um, but yeah, let's jump into it. So the first song we're going to talk about is called Queen of the Night. Got it all. Um, so this is, I consider this the uh, the most modern sounding song on the album. Is it New Jack Swing? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah New Jack Swing. Like, it, pop. it makes me think of a Michael Jackson song, especially sounds, this opening. To me, it sounds like Janet Jackson mm. or uh, even a little bit of Madonna. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah like she's yeah, belting it out though. Listen to this. That is a fierce, independent woman. I don't need no man. Okay, so um, this song, I, I don't know if you want to talk about the lyrics of it before we talk about the context of the movie itself. 
We can talk about the context. Yeah. Because I think that the lyrics go hand in hand with it. Yeah, so um, the the film, as we talked about, is a... The premise is a, a female vocal, like a female, like, superstar, uh, like, singer, performer, pop star, falls in love with her bodyguard, her brand new bodyguard. So Kevin Costner plays an aged bodyguard... <laughs> That's true. Uh, Their age difference, y'all. Yeah, he's he's an older white man, and Whitney Houston is Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they have a bit of a contentious relationship, but you know they fall in love. Um, no, I wouldn't use that language. Well, she's <laughs> like she's like into him from the start. Like she, he walks in the room. She looks him up, like up and down, and like like he's not seventy two years older than her. <laughs> she bites her lip. She's like, <laughs> I am into this. <laughs> <laughs> and and then like <laughs> Kevin Costner has to slowly like he 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 doesn't like her at first because she, she I think he thinks she's a bit spoiled. Yeah, um, full immature. of herself, immature. But like slowly, he's like. He becomes, like, infatuated with her. I don't even know when that happens. When it's he, just, oh, a, I guess we're into each other now, to, in my opinion. There is a scene where he they have a they have an argument, mm-hmm. and then that night, he decides to just watch her music video. It's <laughs> so weird! I was like, not just watch her music video, watch it with the TV blasted at 100, dead of night. He lives at the pool house across, so it's carrying across the water... To the, uh, this is not a movie episode, guys. I'm sorry. It's just a weird scene. Like, she, she's like, he, she's like talking to someone that she's like, wait, what's that? And she hears herself and she like goes and say, he's just in a glass house watching a music video of her while she's legit like a hundred feet away. He's and got, they're he's, like, he's got yeah. a cup of wine. He's enjoying it. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. It's so strange. And so I, it's the music video is not for this song, but the, this song I think introduces us to the character yeah. of whatever her name is. She plays a character named Rachel Marin. Mm. So Rachel Fish. Rachel, the, the superstar, like she's been filming a brand new song music video for a brand new song in her home. Um, and that's what this song is, Queen of the Night. And I feel like Queen of the Night is like the anthem of Rachel Marin. Like what yeah. the character that she is at the start of the film. Right? Yeah. And, and it's like larger than life. She has she has everything yeah. that a superstar would need, right? Yeah. And I think even with that, uh, I feel like we need to just do a whole dark episode about this movie because there's so much. Yeah, maybe. Um, but like... Or one of the lines in here that expresses it pretty well, it says, you've got a problem with the way I am. Then they say I'm trouble and I don't give a darn. <laughs> but when I'm bad, I know I'm better. And I was, I, that thought, that line made me think, um, or like dissecting it is, is her saying like, I'm at my best when you think I'm the worst. And that's very much the character of Rachel Marin. <laughs> when she enters the film, yeah. Yeah. So she's very much just kind of like, I think there's even a line she throws in there that just says like, well, you know, I wasn't rude and stuff, but people started calling me rude and stuff. So I started like acting that way. And I guess I am now. I'm you the know. baddest bee in the room. Yeah. So it's it, it's very much like this, like, oh, you have a problem with me? Then that's your problem. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> but not not just that, because I can get behind that a little bit. But, like, it's that kind of mentality of, I'm going to do me, even if 
you think it's bad, even if it is bad, like I'm at my best, I'm living my best life, I'm having the most fun yep. when I'm doing not the worst thing. She's not like the worst person. No. But, you know, that's what this line says to me. But and if, I'm the queen of the night. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this is very, as we talked about, she's very immature in mm-hmm. some ways. And I feel like when she's backed into a corner is when she reverts to this, you know, queen of the night persona is when she becomes like selfish. I'm going to do what I want then, you know, yeah. bratty almost, right? Um, there's a point in the film where. <laughs> Rachel and her bodyguard Frank have a an argument and he he uh he tries to create some distance because yeah there were, there were some deep ethical problems in a yeah. bodyguard having a romantic relationship and receiving money from his client yeah. while also pursuing a romantic relationship with that client um so he just you know he puts her, he, he puts his foot down and says we need to we need to stop we 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 need to Stop the, whatever this is, you know, right. because it's not appropriate. And she's like, well, fine then. I'm just going to go sleep with every guy that I want, then. you know? And she yeah. like has like a bratty like moment. <laughs> she's like inviting guys into a room to make out with them. Yeah. Not your best moment, Rachel. <laughs> no. And that's, that is her putting up the facade of the, the super starlet. Yeah. And that's what this Queen of the Night song is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, but, uh, but it's also pretty by the numbers in, in my oh, opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We can hear a little bit more of that. Um... I, I mean, I like it, though. I chose I will, to talk about it. I will say, you can hear right here, there's a like banging guitar solo. A few things about that. The, the guitar solo was performed by Vernon Reed of Living Color. which is an all-black metal band from the time. They had the song Cult of Personality, which is excellent. They're like a (laughs) groove metal band, but they're so cool. That feels right up your elbow. Yeah, they're they're excellent. Go look up Living Color. But anyway, I feel like this song is trying to be Whitney Houston's, like, beat it, or Whitney Houston's, like, bad. Mm -hmm. Like, where she's trying to create that crossover hit. Right? Right. Where it's like, it's got elements of hip-hop. It's got elements of pop. It's got elements of R&B. And it's got a little, little bit of rock in there. Yeah. Right? So it, it's it's there to, you know, hit all of the, all the bases. <laughs> and I, I, I think it worked out because they had, they had a multi-pronged plan for this album, right? Mm-hmm. Whitney Houston performed six songs for The Bodyguard. Five of those were released as singles. They oh. knew what they were doing. Wow. They're like... This this is this is market you know this is marketable yeah we're gonna make some money off this album <laughs> before did it come out even before the movie came out that I don't know I it's possible mm. it's very very possible in fact it, this was the first single off the album so I assume this no was it no I don't think that's right it's okay yeah I assume at least one of these songs came out before yeah. the movie came out before the, al- the A little, album little uh, appetized wetcher right that probably wasn't the proper way to say that. All right, so um, Queen of the Night was only released as a single in the UK. So due to Billboard charts requirements at the time, um, it was ineligible to chart on the Billboard Hot 100. Hmm. Um, Regardless, the song peaked at number 36 on the Hot 100 Airplay and number one on Billboard's Hot Dance Dance Club play chart. (laughs) This is an excellent club song. They should still play this in clubs. Like, just drop this and I'm the Queen of the Night. (laughs) Especially like early '90s dance clubs, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like everyone be up on the floor. Yeah, I, mi- I miss old dance music. <laughs> I saying. thought you were gonna say I miss old clubbing. I was like, Excuse I've, me, I've never sir. clubbed. I don't think I ever want to club. But like I can imagine in 1992, 
if you were at like even like a wedding reception, right? Oh like, yeah. Like when when, every, when all of the like you know sentimental dancing is over and everyone's just having a good time. Yeah. They throw on Whitney Houston's Queen of the Night and everyone's like, Wah! we should have played this at our wedding. But uh, now you just get garbage. You know, you, you get cha cha slides. <laughs> <laughs> People like their cha cha slides. I don't. But let's move on to something now for something completely different. All right, so the next song we're talk about is called, and I think this is like, you could think of this as like the theme song of The Bodyguard in a way, right? Like this is the, it, it was written for the movie. Okay. It is quoted in the movie. Okay. I think this song is the theme song. All right. And it's, it's not the flagship. It's not the flagship, <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's the heart of the film. Mm. It, it sells the theme. Right. It's called I Have Nothing. And this is one of those songs where, like, this intro, for example, it's like, I, I would say, oh, I've never heard this song. I've never heard this song. But then when you get to the chorus, like, yeah, I've heard this song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got you to listen to Whitney sing it a little bit. All right, so we'll let Whitney croon a little bit. But tell us what... <laughs> What is this song about? This song is about... (laughs) This song is really about just kind of like expressing your love. You're expressing your want, your passion for someone. Like, it's really expressing like, hey, I got feelings. Hear me out. (laughs) It it is a cut and dry love song. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. Yes, it, it it's I don't want to say it's cut and dry. There's some things about it lyrically that are like super interesting. One I I totally misread. So, it's it I wouldn't say it's like super cut and dry because there's some lines in it that are are pretty provocative in uh how they're ex- how Whitney is expressing these these things, right? Yeah. So, uh well at first, right, it's Share my life, take me for what I am, because I'll never change all of my colors for you. That is the only line I wrote down, because I thought that was the only interesting line in the song. Because <laughs> to me, it was like, I'll never change all of my colors for you. That's like, in in one way, that, that's the kind of love I respect. Yeah. Where it's like, I don't want somebody who like, it's it's it's, it's sort of like, it, some guy, even, you know, guys, like, mm. I love you because you're beautiful, right? And I'm attracted to you, but... Maybe can you like meet me at my end here, like Prince with... Derek from Swan Lake? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like can you like not be that way? <laughs> you know? It's like you don't love her for her; you love her for your her looks. Like I don't yeah, know. That, that that's kind for of shallow reasons. Yeah, yeah, shallowness, and it doesn't have to just be physical attraction, mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, in, in with some guys, even it's like. Oh, that's a gamer chick. Yeah, I want to date her mm-hmm. because you guys share interests. Yeah, but you have nothing else in common. Yeah, and it's like you got you got to love somebody for who they are and their personality yeah. and all that stuff. Like you, you got to learn it. You can't just be yeah. like, "This is this is what you like other stuff." Yeah, yeah, I'm a com- I'm a complex human person. Um, and you're right. Like this line, I like for some reason my brain didn't read the line because I'll never because I'll never change. It skipped from take me from what I am, all my colors for you. And I was like, that reads a very different song. And I was just like, what, is, what are you saying? Are you saying that you're like, you were 
all your colors you were made for this person so you're like the perfect compliment or you're just going to give yourself over no matter what you are to the no, person not, but not this way with yes but with that line above it right because i'll never change all of my colors for you that's such a strong stand yes. especially like even share my life like it's the beauty of that line is it or that uh double couplet that those four lines is it starts off with like a demand or a what is that word when you're like asking for something a a request a a resultation i don't know that's not what it is but um like saying share my life do it like this is what i'm offering to you share my life directive directive it's not the word i can't (laughs) think of it and then Take me for what I am because I'll never change all my colors for you, but share my life. Like, I want you in here, yeah. but I'm uh, the mess and the organization that I am is everything, yeah. you know? So nice. <laughs> but but I, I cut the song off there. I'm sure people are like, you cut off the chorus? You're crazy. <laughs> so I'm going to play the chorus and we're all going to belt it out together. No, we're not. But you can at home, every, kids. Go ahead and sing along with Whitney. Yeah, this is. Uh, this we're, is we're not there yet. There you go. I feel like the last part of that that chorus, by the way, I have nothing with. What is it? I have nothing without you. Yeah. You Without that, I, it completely changes what I thought the, th- the song was about. Because mm-hmm. I, when I the 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 word the words I have nothing right, mm-hmm. especially in the context of the film, you were like thinking like, is this poor rich woman like complaining about how she doesn't have <laughs> real connections in her life? But no, no. The the message of the song is I have no- nothing if I don't have you, mm-hmm. right? Because you mean so much to me. Right? Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. makes it more of like a oh yeah, that's a real love song, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I actually like really love the lead up to that though, like because it gets more and more passionate, right? Yep. Like where she's talking, like right. We talked about how she's like, oh, I want to share my life. I'm not going to change myself for you, but I'll give. I won't ask too much for from you, just everything you are. And then it's, I don't really need to look much further. I don't want. I don't want to go where you don't follow. And just the those things, like okay, right? Like I'm not going to look around for anyone else, but I also don't want to go. Where you can't come with me. Yeah. Cool. And then it comes back. Skip. I've skipped a bit in this. Don't make me close one more door. I don't want to hurt anymore. Stay in my arms if you dare. So going from the like, hey, I want to be with you and I want you to want to be with me and be able to be with me to like, hey, don't say no. Like, don't shut this door on this chance that we're giving. I'm finally like letting myself speak about this. I don't want to hurt by not talking about it. Like, stay with me. And then, or if I must, or must I imagine you there, don't walk away from me. Like, it just gets so intense. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was, I was gonna, just like, what? And then I have nothing. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Ooh. I was going to say something I appreciate about like hearing it, especially like you reading the lyrics and then like me hearing how passionate she is. I'm yeah. like, there is a strength in her vulnerability. And I was yeah. like, that, that's a very like, 
I feel like that's a strong quality to have. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a unique quality. Because when you think of vulnerability, you think of, like, meekness. But it's like, no, man. Whitney's vulnerability, she's rocking. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and that's why when you were like, ah, you know, it's kind of cut and dry. I was like, nothing is dry here. There's cutting. <laughs> Her vocal performance does half the job, though. Yeah. Like, the lyrics by themselves are a little boring. Yeah. Standard. But how she's How she's doing it. Like, yeah, Whitney, I'm into it. For real. Though I will say I got a little bit confused. So, well, maybe there's not. Like, a little bit after the first chorus and stuff. Yeah. There's a line that says, uh, will a memory survive when I can hold on to? So I was just like, what does this mean? Is your lover dead? Is the note that I have to myself. Like, are you saying all of this to somebody who's already, already gone? Or, But I think it's really just kind of like, this is her, like, having this exaltation? Is that the word I'm looking for? Okay. Um, where she's like sitting here just like pleading to be heard. Yeah. And saying, but if you choose to walk away, if you choose to close the store, like, will I have some kind of memory of you to hold on to? Like that kind of thing. And like, what will that memory look like? And it's just like a whole song about like, okay, I'm putting myself out there, but I'm not going to like. I'm not going to wait for you if the, you're not going to meet me there. Yeah. So it's just yeah. a good song. So let's talk about this song in the context of the movie. Okay. So, um. I think we could talk about it in the terms of her character before I talk about like the like how it fits in with the plot, right? Because it kind of works in both ways. Like in one way, I think "I Have Nothing" can be heard as a song written by Rachel Marin, the character in yeah. the movie. Like it's her in the movie. She has written this song before she meets Frank, her bodyguard, right? right but right, in, right. in many ways, it like you listen to the lyrics here, and it's almost like she's singing to Frank, yeah, or she's singing to the man she like was she's waiting for, for. Yeah. yeah and it, and then frank enters her life <laughs> so she's like yeah i'm i'm i know i'm hard to handle mm-hmm. you know i'm like i'm opinionated and yeah I'm, I'm independent it's still very much the same character from queen, queen of, of the, the night. night right but it's more vulnerable because yeah. she's like i want you there with me right right and i think that it, that can be seen as weakly as it is uh with Whitney and Kevin Costner trying to develop their relationship in the mm-hmm. movie. They're both trying real hard. They they are they are trying. Yeah. The they, actors. The the actors in the movie are trying to portray those emotions and those feelings. Those those very intense, complicated romantic feelings, but they have no chemistry. They don't and they don't have time. Yeah. The movie moves very quickly because there's a whole plot we haven't talked about. And why don't we talk about the plot now? So this song is also kind of a meta song because I Have Nothing exists in our world, but also I Have Nothing exists in the bodyguard world mm-hmm. as the lead single of Rachel Marin's new film, of which she is nominated for an Oscar. Yes. Well, guess what? It's Oscar time again, and this year the smart money's on Rachel Marin for Best Actress. With the theme song from her last movie, I Have Nothing, still big on the charts. It looks like the versatile actress-singer could soon end up actually having everything. You missed that moment when we were watching the movie. I was like, look, she has an Oscar! Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> in some ways it's almost like the film is trying to predict, like, she's going to have, the, like, Whitney, she's going to star in this movie, and she's going to write this song that in the script we said is a hit song that's top the billboard charts. Whitney's going to mm-hmm. release this song. It's going to top the billboard charts. And then Whitney's going to be nominated for the Oscar <laughs> for starring in the bodyguard, just like her character did. 
Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. I mean, that would have been cool if it happened. Yeah, if, if Whitney was a powerhouse actress as yeah. well. But she, unfortunately, was not. <laughs> not in this role, at least. <laughs> she could have had a Lady Gaga moment where she was nominated for the Oscar for A Star Was Born. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could have happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in that clip I just played, you could also hear, like, snipping sounds, like, snip, snip. Snip, snip. Right. Um, that is because that th- that news report is being played on the television set of a creepy stalker mm-hmm. that follows Rachel Marin around. Like he's obsessed with her, and he leaves her threatening, weird, obsessive notes. Yeah. Like cut out of newspaper clippings. Yeah. So this subplot is that Whitney Houston has to hire a new bodyguard because people have been making attempts on her life. Okay. Here's the thing. She does have to. Right? Like, because at the very beginning, there's, like, an explosion, and it's, like, somebody tried to blow up her car. One. But she's not taking it seriously. The no, per- she's, she's not. It's not like she has to hire a bodyguard. It's literally one of her managers are, like, hire the bodyguard. And a different manager's, like, it's not that bad because they're not telling her how bad it is. Right. She just thinks it was, like, oh, a car blew up. Which, honey... <laughs> Honey, can I just say, kids, she has an eight-year-old child, and yes. she's like, oh, somebody just tried to blow me up. Girl, where's your kid going to go if you die? What do you mean? What do you mean it's just a car? Anyway, so that's <laughs> the only thing she knows is going on. Okay, we're not going to do a movie episode because I'm about to spoil the crap out of this movie, guys. <laughs> like, other things, she doesn't know about the notes that are being dropped because her other manager is like, no, no, I don't want her she distracted. She doesn't know this creepy stalker has broken into her home and violated her bed. Yes. Like, legitimately, like, I was like, homie, like, we had to pause the movie. I was like, if somebody did not tell me, like, what? And not just, like, broke into her house and did unspeakable things on her, her bed, but she, like, was in the house in a separate room with her son, like helping her son go to sleep and nobody told her. And it, it was like two months before we we're hearing about it. Yeah. And I was just like, I would fire every, my child is in this house. <laughs> what do you mean? I didn't need to know. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, I have nothing, right. That's the name of her lead single in the movie, right? The movie, it's like the song within the song or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, and that line, I have nothing is repeated often, right? Because it like to to like the weird creepy stalker character it's sort of like something that he hates about Rachel Marin mm-hmm. it's like you have everything you you whore like whatever, yeah. whatever it is right like yeah. it, and it's like almost this weird like class thing right like this yeah. it's like i am envious of your wealth and your beauty and like it's like that weird you know that weird relationship that like stalkers have with their victims right yeah. like it's like I am obsessed with you, but I hate you, and I loathe you, and I envy you. It's it's really weird, and it's not explored very well in the film, but that's the parallels that I could find between the song's lyrics right, right. and this weird subplot in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and and that is, um, it's so creepy. And, and they don't really spend enough time on it, sort of. No, they, like, it wraps up very nicely. It's yeah, like, it's just like they catch they catch this guy, and he's not the one who's been attempting to blow her up. Yeah, that's a it's that's a, different, a different person. It's a different it's a, a different assassin. <laughs> and they just they 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 arrest this weird stalker, and they have him. They're like the police have him in the interrogation room, and they're on the phone with the bodyguard. And he's like, "Is it him? Is he blowing up the? Is he sending the bombs?" And they're like, like, "No, no. <laughs> he just sent weird he just sent weird notes." 
we can't arrest him for that. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't? Nope. What? <laughs> uh, this movie's really bad, guys. This movie is really bad. I will also say, just in the movie, I, I almost want to believe, like, in canon. I was going to say kayfabe. I hate you. <laughs> um, in canon, that, like, uh, Rachel's sister wrote this song. <laughs> Is that is that the case? No, no. I just like to think of oh, think about okay. it. Oh, yeah. Right? That's that's another thing. There, yeah. there is a sister character that Rachel has. He was also very envious of Rachel's wealth and popularity and beauty yeah. because they were in a little band together. And then Rachel took off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she kept her sister with her, but her sister was jealous. It she was, wanted it to be was, a star it was too. Clear who the pop, or it was clear who the talented one in the family was. Yeah, she literally <laughs> said that. She also said at one point, "I'm the one that paid you," which is why <laughs> it would have been my name. Um, it, 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 I think the sister character also quotes, I have nothing. Yeah. You know? She has everything. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing. That's why, that, that's why I wanted to highlight this song. Cause at the very least they tried to integrate the song with the movie in some way. And that's, more, that's more than I was expecting because we listened to the album first mm-hmm. and then we watched the movie and I was expecting all these songs to be like filler. Just, yeah. Like, like di- diegetic. Yeah. But no, no, this, this song and the next song we'll talk about actually have feet. They have, they, they have standing in the plot. Yeah. Um, so want to talk about that next song. Okay. It's the one that we all know. It's the flagship. I-, <laughs> <laughs> I, I raise my hand in triumph every time I play that. Alright, so that is the song I Will Always Love You. <laughs> so, this is a song written and originally recorded in 1973 by American singer songwriter Dolly Parton. I um, suggest, children, that you go on Hulu if you have it and watch the Drunk History episode about Dolly Parton. It's excellent! Does it talk about this song? Yes. Was This song was written for Little Whorehouse in Texas? Is that what it is? That's a, it's a, I think that's a movie. <laughs> The smallest little whorehouse in Texas? No. Oh, okay. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a movie or not. That's not why this song was written. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm just guessing. I'm, I saw I saw words on Wikipedia and assumed. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll watch Drunk History after this. There we go. All right, so just, just to give everyone a taste, here's Dolly Parton singing the high note. charm it does so apparently this was not to be featured in the film mm-hmm. this wasn't going to be on the soundtrack right it, whitney originally wanted to record jimmy ruffin's song what becomes of the brokenhearted i don't, I don't i've never heard that song before okay well i'm gonna look it up after this <laughs> jimmy uh, hartens jimmy ruffin okay what becomes of the brokenhearted um however when it was discovered that that song was going to be used for the film Fried Green Tomatoes, oh. Houston requested a different song. Uh, and in fact, her co-star, Kevin Costner, suggested I Will Always Love You. And he played... The for... only good decision Kevin made during this movie. <laughs> Apparently, uh, speaking of their relationship on set, Whitney agreed to teach Costner to sing if Costner taught Whitney to act. Oh, those acting lessons came a little too late, honey. <laughs> now I'm curious to see if Kevin Costner has like released a music album since then. Oh, I'm not curious. I can, assa- I can assess his music talent. Anyway, so um, Kevin Costner played um, Houston Linda Ronstadt's version of "I Will Always Love You" uh, to convince her to play that song. And mm-hmm. I've got Linda playing the high note. 
No offense, Linda. Dolly did it better. I mean, it is her song. Whitney also did it better. Yes. Linda's trying. Linda Ronstad. That's the voice you use when you're quoting something, but I don't know what it is. No, that's, uh, um, the Muppets met Linda Ronstad once, and Kermit <laughs> goes like, Linda Ronstad? <laughs> anyway, so producer David Foster in Houston thus rearranged the song as a soul ballad. Um, Excellent. Le- less of like a poppy, like, rock. No, it's not mm. rock. It's, it's like a, it's just a soul song. Yeah. Yeah. Folk song. Yeah, folk, I think, would be the... Yeah, so let's, let's, let's hear that start, because it starts with an acapella. If I should stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go. And uh, apparently the producers of the film and of the record were saying, hey, we don't think a song... Starting with acapella will be popular. And it's Whitney Houston. Yep, Her voice is an instrument. Shut up. And I think the beauty of, like, how big it gets is her drop there. Like, that she goes into... She goes under the music when the music comes in. (sighs) Yeah, it's good. But unfortunately, this song for me has been ruined by, like, quirky action movies that use this song ironically in their trailers. (laughs) Like, Deadpool did it. Oh, gosh. I think, like, Suicide Squad might have done it. Like, um... The freaking the Hitman's Bodyguard, which is a movie that came out, which oh, I saw that. was <laughs> this it used this song in its trailer. So this this song has become like it's it's sappy and cheesy and corny. I and we and set us like showing clips of like explosions in slow motion is mm. <laughs> like a funny you know juxtaposition. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, kids. If one of you guys could like edit scenes of jackie chan's bodyguard to this song please send it send it to our twitter yes please. <laughs> i want to see that immediately okay so when i was reading through these right yep the lyrics the lyrics of not just the song because it's very straightforward and short and listen to that sexy sax that is good some, some good some good sax i will talk about some more good sax later <laughs> is that a sax thing? <laughs> Dear. <laughs> so, um, when I was reading these oh, things... Oh, speaking of that sax solo, it is performed by Kirk Whalem. Oh. Shout out to Kirk. Whale on that, Kirk. Captain Kirk. <laughs> James Tiberius Kirk. <laughs> um, nerd. Um, yeah, okay. So, I think it's uh, really interesting because like, when I read these back-to-back without the music... Uh, in the order that we're talking about them in, uh, Queen of the Night is basically like saying, if you got a problem with me, like, I don't care. I'm bad. Uh, I know I'm as I'm, what is it? But when I'm bad, I know I'm better. And then 
uh, I have nothing starts off with uh, take me for what I am because I'll never change your colors for me. And so I was just like, okay, this could be seen. It is the same character, right? Yes. With the movie. Yes. But just saying like, hey, I'm not like about to change or anything, but this is what I am. But uh, and then even in um, I have nothing, the lines where it's just kind of like, will uh, a memory survive one I can hold on to? And then we get to. I will always love you. If I should stay, I would only get in your way. So I'm going to go. Yes. And just this whole thing of this like moving. It, I all it. And it is this. It is this in the movie. But like this, the first two songs feel very much like they are sung by one person in this partnership. And this song is a response. Yes. By the second partner in this partnership right. that or, is or, saying or I it's can't. a re- or it's a response to a response right like the partner has expressed well here's my take on what you've been talking about mm-hmm. and then this is like okay if this isn't meant to work then we need to go our separate ways yeah but I... <laughs> uh so f- we were very surprised to find out that this song has deep meaning for the characters of the bodyguard <laughs> In the film, they hear it. So, okay, let, let me set up. I, I got a clip from the movie to really show how important this song is thematically to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel and Kevin, no, uh, Frank, go on a date. They they decide, yes, we are into each other. <sighs> Let, let's go out on a you know on a night on the town. <laughs> <laughs> they go. They go to them. They go to the movies. They go watch Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. <laughs> they do do that. In some kind of, you know, throwback theater, I guess. Um, and then they go to a bar, and it's like a very much like a working class white man bar. A hundred percent. I don't believe that Whitney Houston would have it's, been it, let in it's that like bar. A, it's like a country western bar. Yeah. Right. And yeah, we were talking, it's like, Rachel Marin is an Academy Award nominee and like the biggest uh, music star. She doesn't even have hat on to hide her personage i was like people wouldn't notice her there and then i said not at that bar they wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) so um they're they're sitting at the bar and they're just chatting about their lives and you know what they you know their their philosophies on life i guess or whatever like philosophies on love and then they decide to dance right and and whitney they put a song on the jukebox and they're dancing slow dance at this bar and it's and i will always love you (laughs) but it's not it's not Dolly Parton's version. Nope. It's not Linda Ronstadt's version. Nope. It's a man singing it. Yes. So they... <gasps> Maybe that's Kevin Costner. No, it's not. It's Dang not. it. No. So I looked it up. <laughs> it is John Doe of the punk alternative band X, uh. Uh, which have it, their hit song was Los Angeles. Um, and he had performed a rock version specifically for the film, right? This like folk rock, blues rock version. So mm. I have John hitting the high note. <laughs> The worst, the worst of the high notes. <laughs> She's making funny like faces. You're so surprised by this. I'm only seeing the mountain cowboy grandpa. <laughs> the, the yodeling cowboy. Yes, that's it. Anyway, so yes, that is that is John Doe of X. Singing. John Doe, don't do it, Doe. <laughs> anyway, so they're dancing to. I will always love you sung by this man. And Whitney is noting on how the song depressing yeah, is. Yeah, how depressing the song is. So <laughs> what? 
blessing. Have you listened to the words? <laughs> it is kind of depressing. Yes, it is. Their acting is worse. Just listening to it. always leading somebody's songs. So yeah, he she remarks on how depressing the song is, which it is. It's a pretty sad song. It's like a bittersweet song about like you know like I love you and I'll always love you, but you need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> or we need to go our separate ways because this isn't working. Which is a very in, in, in some, honestly in some ways that is a healthy mature response to a volatile relationship. <laughs> High to five. Be, yeah. So I think honestly, like by the end of the film, Rachel Marin, the character has gone her separate ways with Frank. Frank. And she writes this song about him. Yeah. And I think that maybe shows her character development is like she is mature enough to realize that, yes, I will always love this man, but it's just not going to work between us. Here's the thing. Yes. But one, you no longer need a bodyguard or you now have a bodyguard. That's not him. You could date him. It's true. What way are you standing in? <laughs> it's kind of ambiguous. It's kind of ambiguous at the end of the film. Uh, spoilers for the bodyguard, but uh, there's a point where they say their goodbye. She gets on her private jet to go jet off somewhere, and he's standing on the runway, and she stops the plane and runs out to embrace him. And you know, maybe, maybe they did start uh, again. You know, maybe maybe they they are in a relationship, and he fathered her son. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. He he was her her son's surrogate father. Yes. <laughs> Because <laughs> that kid loves boats, you know. It's very weird. The movie's not good, guys. It's not good. Kids, just don't, just trust us. All right, so is that all you um, you want to say about I Will Always Love You? Bittersweet. It is very bittersweet. Memories. I didn't realize bittersweet was a lyric, li- lyric in the song, so there yeah. you go. That's all I am taking with me. It's so say goodbye. Oh, okay. Well, so goodbye. Please don't cry. On to the next song. Okay, so <laughs> from the now the Bodyguard original soundtrack album um, is not just Whitney songs. There are a few guest songs to come in. You know, uh, other songs that were featured in the film were included on this album, right? So side A is all Whitney. Side B is her guest stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to highlight at least one guest song because I felt like. It helps give an idea of the whole album, the album as a whole. But also, there's like one particular featured guest that I really want to talk about. Okay. Before I mention that, so guest musicians on the Bodyguard soundtrack include Lisa Stransfield, Curtis Stigers, Joe, Cro- Joe Cocker, Sass Jordan, and The Soul System. <laughs> and then the, the soundtrack also features the film's theme song, which was composed by Alan Silvestri, who also did the soundtrack for... Back to the Future. Yeah. But the song I want to talk about is called Even If My Heart Would Break. I said we're going to get some good sax. <laughs> I give good sax. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. So that saxophone. Oh, listen to that guy. I was like, be quiet, guy. I want to hear that saxophone. All right, so this is a collaboration between saxophonist Kenny G and singer Aaron Neville. Star of the show, though, is Kenny G, okay? All right. In your opinion. 
So to me, like the lyrics of this song, the singing, they can go. I don't care. I want to talk about Kenny G and the saxophone <laughs> because like I was hearing about this and like for some reason, like, you know how you make connections in your mind, right? You like, and you, you're, you're trying to like, is there, is there, is this like correlation? Is this causation, you know, or is this just a coincidence? Right. right. For some reason, so many songs in the early nineties. Had Kenny G? It, not just Kenny G, but like featured sax prominently. And I was like, was that a thing? Was there a reason for that, right? Was saxophone just so dang popular in the early 90s? Everybody wanted to be cool like the president. Even Bill Clinton, at his inauguration, had a lineup of like 20 saxophone players, <laughs> including Kenny G, perform for him. <laughs> Everybody loved the saxophone, including Bill Clinton. So I'm like, what's the deal here? So I did a little bit of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and What's the deal with the saxophone? So Vox, though, the website, um, they have a series on, like, jazz, right? Just the genre of jazz. And they have just a, a series of videos on the history of jazz. And they had a really great video on smooth jazz. Right. This, whatever this song is, this is smooth jazz, right? With a little <laughs> bit of, you know, R&B soul in there, right? So I was like, so they had this great explanation for why smooth jazz was so dang popular in the late 80s, early 90s, right? Okay. So... Smooth jazz as a term wasn't a, it didn't exist until the late 80s, right? The term smooth jazz did not exist. So <laughs> smooth jazz started out as like they used to call it crossover jazz or like okay. pop pop jazz, right? right? So it was kind of like the opposite of your um traditional traditional jazz Soul. <laughs> jazz fusion, right, which was more mm-hmm. rock oriented. It was like no, no, this is like jazz that you know, people can, like, you know, just get down to. I don't know. What, what am I saying? Like, it, it jazz that people can just, like, chill out to. Right, okay. Right? Like, easy listening jazz. Yeah. Easily listening jazz? That's so, it. in the late 80s, adult contemporary music was get also getting popular. We talked about with, with Anita Baker, 1988, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. so, a bunch of radio stations started sampling different, like, smooth sounding songs, right? And grouping them together into a block. Right. Most notably, uh, down here in Southern California, we've got uh, 94.7 The The Wave. Wave. (laughs) They helped launch this block of music, which was a mix of crossover jazz, pop jazz, um, easy listening, adult contemporary, a little bit of, you know, soul, Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of pop, like simple pop, like, you know, maybe some Teddy Pendergrass or or some... uh, Lionel Richie, right? Hall of Notes, maybe. Mm-hmm. And they tried to market it to people. They would focus group listeners. Uh, and they were like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Oh, I like that. Oh, that's not... You know, they would focus group and create a block for, like, easy listening adults. <laughs> what do you like? You know? And they started asking, like, what would you call this type of music? Oh, I don't know. And they had an interview with one of the guys who focus grouped you know, help put these focus groups together. And this guy said, this woman walked in and they said, can you describe this type of music? Oh, it's smooth. <laughs> and they're like, that's it. We've cracked <laughs> Found the code. It. Smooth jazz. Thanks, woman who doesn't even get a, an at. And so smooth jazz was born in the late 80s and by the early 90s because it had been so... Focused? So, f- like, manufactured by record companies and the radio companies to be as like approachable as possible mm-hmm. and commercial as possible it just took off and it was a successful genre of music and the star of the show 
was one Kenny G. Get it, Kenny? Um, so thank you for letting me indulge myself <laughs> in the, the 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 smooth jazz conversation, but like just in case you're wondering, kids, this song is on the list because uh, he wanted to be indulged in this yes. smooth jazz. So just listen to this. Like you got listen to that, man. You just got this sax. Kenny G's just going for it, right? And like even my album from '92, which we will talk about, has a song that features like soprano saxophone prominently. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it, but it was everywhere. <laughs> it's even saxophone is like we crossing butters, right? Borders. So, anything you want to talk about with this song um, lyrically? <clears throat> is it? No, honestly, lyrically, it was just kind of like, uh, I enjoyed some of the, like, chorus because it was so forward. <laughs> like, uh, is this, uh, is it too familiar to say I love you? I mean, would you be suspicious if I asked your name? Tell me, what would it take to really convince you that I'm going to love you, even if it breaks my heart? Like, hi, Chad, back off. I'm married. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, but I do it. I was just like. Oh, he's really playing this game, though. This isn't a game. Um, so I I enjoyed that. But uh, there's a couple lines that I was just like, <laughs> that it just took me out of it. I, one of my notes is literally just think of the children. <laughs> but okay, one of the lines is, uh, but what I'm feeling is summer in my heart. And my question was like, okay, but what kind of summer? A sticky, sweaty Georgia summer? A dry, hot California summer? Like, what What kind of summer is your heart feeling? This is important information. <laughs> and then there's this whole, like, small little stanza. But when I'm with you, uh, it's always summer in my heart. So let the mountains tumble into the sea. Let the rivers overflow. It won't bother me. Let the stars go out tonight because I can see them in your eyes. And I want to love you. And I was like, yeah, but... I need the stars. I need the mountains. The waters are already rising. Don't make the mountains fall into them. So only silly things to say about the song. I couldn't take it seriously. You got some metaphors. You got some similes. That's all you need in a in a piece of poetry. <laughs> Badoomch. Oh dear. You made a right. Yeah, like honestly, like this song is like pretty ca- like throwaway. Like yeah. if not for like the sexy saxophone, <laughs> in my opinion. Um. So yeah, like even. In the film, this song is like background music. Yeah, it's not. Important. I can't even remember. What I, it was. I I did. I like searched the film to try and find <laughs> out where this was played. It's played outside of a diner. Like Rachel has gone to breakfast with her friends, oh. and she's leaving the diner, and this song could be heard on the intercom. And like a little girl asks for an autograph, and Frank is like, "We gotta get out of here. We gotta get." <laughs> and she's like, "I want to hang out with my friends." Oh yeah, she was being a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the bodyguard. Um, that's all. That's all we're gonna highlight for now. If you'd like to listen to it, would you recommend it? Um, the album? Sure. <laughs> Actually, hey kids, you want to do like a virtual karaoke night where we all just sing? <laughs> and I will always love you a hundred times. Yeah, idara, urinorevang, cha. Yeah, honestly, like the the album is so inoffensive that it's yeah, it's fine. You just, it's, you, just, you just play it. It's, it's, it you're going to like have, have I'm noticing time. that you're not agreeing to join me on my karaoke night. I I, I try. You live in my house. <laughs> I don't want to upset our neighbors. You're upsetting your wife. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, like it's not a strong recommend, but I'd recommend yeah, it. Yeah, it's 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 
It's better than the movie by a hundred. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of the the movie and how good it is, let's talk about the reception of the album and the movie. Okay. All right. So. The Bodyguard is, as I said earlier, the best-selling soundtrack album of all time, with sales of 45 million copies sold worldwide. Nice. Um, Nice. But despite that title, it only debuted at number two on the Billboard 200 chart and the Billboard Top R&B Hip Hop Albums chart of the week of its release. Want to take a guess on what beat it that week? I was quite surprised. I have no idea what came out this. (laughs) It was Ice Cube's The Predator. Oh, Yeah, so good job, Ice Cube. Good job. Not only did you beat Whitney in the Billboard charts, you're also a better actor than she is. (laughs) I mean, it's true. (laughs) Um, But But Whitney will never hear this, so... Oh, I just said a sad thing! Cut it! Oh, no. But in its second week, the album overtook Ice Cube, and the album topped both both of those charts and then broke the record for the most one-week sales twice. Nice. Um, it spent 20 non-consecutive weeks at number one. Oh, wow. Yeah. This was a huge hit. Yeah. I, I would say The Bodyguard wouldn't have been as popular if not for this album. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Whitney Whitney put butts in the seats. Yeah, she did. The album was a worldwide success as well, peaking at number one in Australia, Austria, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, Hungary, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Nielsen ratings, you know the yeah, they had just launched the SoundScan computerized sales monitoring system in what? 1991. I don't understand any of those words you just said. It was like a new special way to monitor uh, album sales and album listening. Okay. So the Bodyguard was the first album verified by that new system to have sold more than one million units in a one-week period. Wow. Yeah. Cool, I guess. Thanks, Nels. Uh, Houston also became the first artist verified to have three songs inside the top 11 of the Hot 100 chart in the same week. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I Will Always Love You was specifically met with widespread critical acclaim. Um, The Gavin Report said that Houston, quote, delivers a powerful rendition that reminds us of her natural abilities as a singer with or without musical accompaniment. Yeah. See? See, friends? This is why you let her sing without music. Yeah. And the Los Angeles Times said that she, quote, has the goods to deliver on the tune's haunting melody and resists overpowering it. Until the finale, when the key change and the stratospheric notes drain all the heart-rending sadness out of the song and make it sound like just another anthem of survival. Which, I, I don't know if they're throwing shade on her or not. Yeah, is that it like sounds almost, a bad thing? Yeah, it sounds almost... Uh, negative. Negative, but I'm like, did you hear it? <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, like, I feel like that reviewer was trying to be pretentious. Yeah. And it's like, unfortunately, it's such a, clout, a, a crowd pleaser that it's like, who cares what you say? Yeah. <laughs> Equal praise was showered on the album's other Whitney-led songs, like I Have Nothing, I'm Every Woman, and Run To You. We didn't talk about two of those, but I wanted to shout them out. Why didn't we talk about I'm Every Woman? I think just because it really didn't have much thematic... Uh, huh? It didn't really have much to say in the movie itself. Like, you just hear it in the car. Like, Rachel Rachel Marin listens to her own music in her free time. She only listens to her own music. She doesn't listen to anything. I mean, it would have cost to put the other music in the movie. I get it. But, like, I was just like, artists are not like that. (laughs) I was like, that's unrealistic. Why wasn't she listening to Kenny G in her free time? (laughs) Like, for real. Like, make some fake artists in the world to be listening to. Like, where she's like, oh, man, I can't wait to collab with this person. Yeah. 
All right, the only criticism that I saw was aimed at Queen of the Night, which was compared oh unfavorably to pop hits like pop hits by contemporaries like En Vogue and Janet Jackson. So they had said like En Vogue and Janet Jackson were doing this better than she was. Okay, got it. Um, Cashbox wrote that quote: "It's actually one of Houston's least impressive single releases, but its aggressive vocal delivery and En Vogue-like flow will probably make for another chart topper, which it was." Yeah. Um, it was. It's very aggressively delivered, and that's why I like it. I'm the queen of the night. We didn't even talk about like she performs that song in the movie, like on stage, like she does a performance, and she, like she's dressed like a robot. Is she a robot? I don't know. She's like dressed in like this like it looks like sh- gladiator get up. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it was like reflective, like she was wearing aluminum or something. Yeah, to save her from the aliens. Very shiny. <laughs> shiny. The Bodyguard original soundtrack album was nominated for four Grammy Awards, winning three, including Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best Pop Vocal Performance Female. Um, And I Have Nothing and Run to You were both nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Losing to, want to take a guess? We already talked about it. No. A whole new world. Oh, it is 89. I was like, what's coming up? 92. 92. Wait, what? Why did that win? Oh, we did talk about this. We talked about Aladdin. Yeah, so Aladdin beat Whitney for that Oscar. Whitney could have won the Oscar just like she did in the movie, but it was stolen uh, by Aladdin. Disney. I, I mean, get, it's there. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it, I mean, we discussed how the song was whatever. Yeah, the song really was whatever. I, I probably, like, the Whitney song, I probably would have voted for that instead. If it was up to me. Yeah, no, it should have. It definitely yeah. should have gone to Whitney. But, you know, things happen. <laughs> Give right. it to a cartoon instead. So anyway, uh, speaking of the Oscars, how was The Bodyguard, the movie, re- received critically? Well, despite being financially successful, it was savaged. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly wrote that at the time, quote, the movie gives us two self-contained celebrity icons working hard to look as if they want each other. It's like watching two statues attempting to mate. Yeah, it's so bad. The chemistry is just zero. That's the worst part, I think. Is like it's a love. It's it's a romance where the two leads have no chemistry. Yeah, like legitimately, Whitney does her best acting in this movie when she's yelling at him. Yeah, <laughs> like when she's just like, oh, when like I, she doesn't have to pretend to be lovey dovey. Yep. I mean, act lovey-dovey. The Bodyguard was nominated for seven Golden Raspberry Awards. That's the anti-Oscars, the worst of the year, um, including Worst Picture, Worst Actor for Costner, Worst Actress for Houston, Worst Screenplay for Lawrence Kasdan, Worst Original Song for Queen of the Night, and Worst New Star for both Houston and Kevin Costner's crew-cut hairdo. (laughs) His hairdo? Yeah. Did they win any? It, no, no, they did not win any Good. Razzies, That's but they were nominated. And, but despite all of those Razzie nominations, the Golden Raspberry Award founder, John Wilson, listed The Bodyguard as one of the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made. Mm. So, yeah, it is quite enjoyably bad. It, yeah. <laughs> all right, and we're going to finish off this segment with the legacy of The Bodyguard and the legacy of Whitney Houston, because, folks, this is our last Whitney album. Yeah, but she was a twofer. She was a twofer. 2012 saw the debut of a musical adaptation of The Bodyguard on London's West End. It was a jukebox musical, which features songs from across Whitney Houston's career. Oh. Yeah, including Saving All My Love For You, How Will I Know, and I Want to Dance With Somebody. So it's like the Whitney musical. Here's the thing. 
Are there any recordings of that? Because I would I would like to see two people who are cast in these parts that can actually act like they like each other to see if it's more believable. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll watch it. We'll report back. In 2017, on the 25th anniversary of The Bodyguard's release, uh, the Houston Estate released I Wish You Love, More From The Bodyguard, which includes alternate versions and remixes of Whitney's songs from the film. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, as far as Whitney Houston goes, after The Bodyguard, she spent much of the 90s starring in films and producing film soundtracks, including Waiting to Exhale, uh. The Preacher's Wife, uh. and... Cinderella. Yeah, Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Yeah. Which is like one of Jess's favorite movies. Yeah. Um, I own it on DVD. <laughs> now it's on Disney+, Plus, but whatever. Uh, Whitney Houston released the critically acclaimed My Love Is Your Love in 1998, which earned the singer her last set of competitive Grammy wins and nominations. She experienced various personal struggles during the 2000s, such as drug abuse, which she contributes to her success after The Bodyguard. Uh, Domestic abuse with her husband, Bobby Brown, and legal issues. Uh, Because of all that, she took a break from music after the release of her 2002 album, Just Whitney, and her 2003 Christmas album. Um, after divorcing Brown in 2006 and announcing herself drug-free in 2009, Houston released her comeback album, I Look To You, which debuted at number one and received a warm reception. Nice. So that's nice. And Whitney's final film role was the 2012 remake of Sparkle, which for, oh. for which she also contributed music to the soundtrack. Yeah. I, I don't know what Sparkle is. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> So, Whitney Houston tragically passed away at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, February 11, 2012. Her death sparked numerous tributes across the music industry, and she was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, the R&B Music Hall of Fame, and the Singers Hall of Fame in 2013. Um, she has since been inducted in the Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. And that is the legacy of Whitney Houston. Whitney, we will always love you. <laughs> And we will think highly of you. <laughs> okay, and that is The Bodyguard. So with that, we are going to close out with the the big ending to I Have Nothing. And we will see you on the other side with my album of 
Hey, we're back, and we're coming in with the very, very, very long intro to the song Pull Me Under from my album of 1992, and that album, released July 7th, 1992, their breakthrough sophomore album, and considered by many to be their best, we've got Images and Words by Dream Theater. (laughs) Another twofer. So, um, yeah, we've got a second Whitney album this year. And our second Dream Theater album this year. Yeah. And if you missed our 1989 music episode, let me just say, Dream Theater is my favorite band of all time. <laughs> uh, yes, love Dream Theater. And this is the one of the three albums that like got me into them. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked a little bit about this in 1989 music, but um, I first heard Dream Theater really in the video game Rock Band 2. There was a song featured in that game, not from this album, but I liked it a lot and was like, cool, where can I see more? You know, and I look it up and Dream Theater had had three different songs in Rock Band slash Guitar Hero by that point. At like that same year, the song you're listening to right now, Pull Me Under, was featured in the game Guitar Hero World Tour, which came out the same year as Rock Band 2. So I was like, cool, I'll download that one. So I downloaded three Dream Theater songs to my phone or my iPod or whatever it was. And uh, that's how the love affair started. <laughs> You're having a love affair? No. I'm not your first love affair? You're not the first. You're not the last. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> that's, a, no. <laughs> that is a, that's a cheap trick song. All right. So um, Dream Theater's Images and Words. Um, let's see how this uh, album came to be. Before we get into it, too, like, I must warn you, I picked, like, the four songs, the four longest songs to talk about, too. Because he hates his wife. Oh, you, you liked these but songs. But he will always love Dream Theater. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start here where we left off in our 1989 music episode. Uh, we talked a lot about their first singer, Charlie Dominici, a.k.a. Papanici. Papanici. So... After a brief promotional tour to support their debut album, When Dream and Day Unite, which we talked about in the 89 episode, Dream Theater fired singer Charlie Dominici and spent the next two years searching for a new singer, fighting to get out of their contract with Mechanic Records, and writing material for their follow-up. The band auditioned over 200 people for the lead vocalist spot. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, most notable among the candidates were ex-Fates Warning singer John Ark, who ultimately decided to shift his focus away from music and Steve Stone who I this is this was all news to me but apparently they actually announced Mr. Stone as their new singer until he was fired after a single show what <laughs> i guess they like they did a show and they were just like he was just acting so weird <laughs> and he forgot what town they were in oh no <laughs> they were just like yeah you're you're not cutting it bro yeah we will continue our search. Yeah, so Steve Stone, shout out to you. Ooh. During the audition process, the remaining members of Dream Theater toured as an instrumental group called Yitze Jam. Yitze Jam! Which is uh, Majesty, which is their first band name, like right. their original band name, Backwards. It's also the name of a instrumental song that we talked about. Yeah. And they wrote most of the material that would end up on Images and Words during that time. So before they even had a new singer to come sing the songs, all the songs had been pretty much written. That's pretty cool. Yeah. These guys, they, they, they're workhorses. We've talked about that. This is true. They, they love to write. Um, you, you see like behind the scenes footage, like there's a full 
documentary they filmed uh with like a freaking vhs camcorder the entire <laughs> making cells. the entire making of of images and words at the studio and like john myung the bassist whenever he's not in the studio recording his bass he's just practicing bass <laughs> he just lives and breathes bass guitar <laughs> He's all about that bass. He's about all that about bass. that bass. About that bass. No trouble. Oh, dear. <laughs> all right. In 1991, Kevin James Labrie, lead vocalist of the glam metal band Winter Rose, submitted an audition tape. And the band was so impressed that they immediately flew him in from Canada to audition in person. Wait, so he was just going to leave his own band? Yep. Well. I mean, people hadn't heard of Winter Rose. Okay. You know, um, I, I Mike Portnoy did an interview once and it was like, they looked at, they had like, they had James Labrie's like audition tape, right? And like, man, he seems great. He seems like Jeff Tate from, uh, from Queensryche. Like he's got that like very operatic range. Mm-hmm. And then he also sent a headshot, <laughs> like a glamour shot. And he's like, and he's pretty too. Like, <laughs> So this guy cute. must be a real jerk. Oh. And then he flies down. It's like, no, he's actually a nice guy. Like, he's, he's Canadian. <laughs> he's just a nice person. So they were like, he's great. Let's hire him. What? Yeah. Cute. So I, I read his full name there, Kevin James Labrie. So he didn't want – at that time, there would have been two Johns and two Kevins. So mm. he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm going to just go by my middle name, James. And now he is known professionally as James Labrie. James Labrie. What? Um, after touring the New York club scene with Labrie – Dream Theater signed with Atco Records, a sub-label of Electro Records, and their first LP release with Atco was Images and Words. Nice! The one we listened to. Yeah. In what would be a common issue with their next several albums, the band repeatedly clashed with producer David Prater, who would lock the, the band out of the studio, and he demanded that drummer Mike Portnoy use triggered snare and bass drum samples. But for why? Because they were lowly musicians and he was the man in charge mm. so i had to look up what a triggered snare was i i, I phoned a friend our, our <laughs> buddy angelo is a is drummer he's a drummer he he knows his drum set so i asked him what is a triggered snare and he said basically it is a little sensor that you stick on your drums right like you just clip it on and it basically you hit your snare drum right mm-hmm. the sensor will read the input right you hit the snare it's like okay he hit the snare it will then feed into a computer, which which will then output a sound. It could be any sound you want. So it's a synthesis. Oh. It, I asked him, I so said, what you're doing is you're making your acoustic drums into an electronic drums. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, basically. It. Let me, let me see. But you can like any sound. So it could be like an elephant trump. I, 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 I assume so. It could be any sample. Like, let me, let me see if I can get his quote. <laughs> they pretty much produce electronic tones. In my perspective, most drummers I know use them solely for electronic tone functions that otherwise can't be played on acoustic drums. So overall, it provides a more versatile experience for drumming. It can either play other tones slash melodies or trigger a series of sounds or sound effects uh, set by the user. Okay. Thank so, you, Angelo. I just That'd be great to hit it once and it just does um, all of... This speech from the, like, we are not machine men. Oh, (laughs) Charlie Chaplin's (laughs) speech from the Just in the middle of the thing. So, like, apparently this was, like, new technology at the time, and this producer was, like, really into it. And so I had to ask Angela, I was like, is this... Widely used? Would, would, could you understand if, like, a, 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 a drummer would feel like it's cheating his, like, musical pride? 
right, mm-hmm. to use these triggered sound effects. And I guess, like, nowadays it's more used for, like, synthesized sounds and, like, you know, n- not not your traditional drum sounds, right? right? right. And, but I can understand, you know, we're talking about progressive metal, progressive rock right now. Right. These guys are very into their music and their musical purity, yeah. right? Like, I can understand them feeling like they're being, they're cheating their listeners by using snare drum samples instead right, of right, the actual right. snare drum sound, right? Because right. it's just the same thing. And I was like, I never really noticed, but um, I, I was looking and reading like drum forums and apparently people were like, what's up with the drums? What's up with the snare sound in these dream theater songs? And I was like, <laughs> how about that? Yeah, people noticed. Yeah. So apparently like this must have been another like common theme in 1992, but like creators – having disputes with their executives because yeah. we talked about it with Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. in, 90, in 91 uh, TV, right? Or movies. Movie. 92, 92 movies. movies. <laughs> what I, sorry, I'm confused. Yeah, I was just like, wait a minute. Yeah, so we, we talked about it with Buffy in our 1992 movies thing right. with Joss Whedon having issues with his director and his producers. And having to walk because of it. Yeah, because yeah, because that's the thing. Like, it, 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 I, what, what was in the air in the 90s? It was all that sax. I, I I think it must have been a holdover from like, you know, the executives. It was very, you know, the 80s were a very commercialized time, right? Mm. And obviously, like, there was some issues in the late 80s with, like, wage disparity. But I feel like the rich still got richer in the late 80s, right? So the early right. 90s, it's like the executives had all the power and the artistic types were just like pawns in their game. So I feel like you see this pendulum swing back and forth throughout the years, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. Si- like, agree. we're just coming out of an era in the late 2010s. Where the studio movie studios had all the power again, you know, and yeah. like you know, you you talk about Marvel and WB and 20th Century Fox, like just Disney. like <laughs> Disney, just strong arming, strong arming their creatives to make the content they think would sell, right? And in some cases that works, some cases it doesn't. In Many you, cases it creates it like a weird Frankenstein movie or weird Frankenstein album. So <laughs> yeah, 1992 that was. It was another year where creatives were getting cheated by the system. Stupid system. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another thing that happened was the band had written so much music in the meantime that they wanted to release a double album. Oh, okay. And but that plan was, like, was nope. rejected by Atco, mm. causing several songs to be omitted and then saved for future albums. So apparently, it's funny. Um, I was watching that documentary, and they walk into a. Uh, John Myung, the bassist, the, he's he's in there playing like in a side room somewhere, right? And the bass line he's playing is from a song that was released in 1999. Oh wow! Or, or no, 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 a song from that was released in '95, like three years later. So you're like, right? Well, you're like, everyone's future. like, oh, he's he's playing a song that they would release later. And then John Petrucci, the guitarist, tells him, John, just forget about that song. They already told us no. <laughs> and he's like, no. He's like, they did. John Myung is a very meek man, oh. very quiet to himself. So I can understand him like, no one tell John. It's going to break his heart. Oh, no. <laughs> he's the most artsy of of the group. In a way, yes. But he's very disciplined. I believe that. The man, he was cut. Like, he had, like, big muscles. Like, like me? He was cut. He's playing his bass. Like, he's just, like, into it. Like, he's very disciplined. He's a very disciplined <laughs> man. It was very, it's very funny to see these people. Do it, John. And, and that is the making of images and words. <laughs> it's quite interesting. While you were talking about the making of images and words, I was making um, a logo for the shirt that I will make for Papa Nietzsche. 
I don't know if he looked like that. I don't care. I'm he, not going to use his actual he had, image. He had large 80s hair. <laughs> I can fix that. Anyway, continue. I was like, speaking of Papanichi, I feel like with our 1989 music episode, he was like the star of the show, right? Right. And he, he was, you know, a very vocal part of the band at that time. He's gone now. So I, what I did was I chose four songs that I wanted to basically spotlight the other members of the band. Okay. And to like basically make them characters, right? And like so yeah. we can understand where they're coming from because this is a collaborative process. Yeah. Especially this band. They work so hard to work together. Yeah. You okay. know, there's no standout guy. So I just wanted to kind of like. they hired the pretty faced young boy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You, you got yeah. a front man. You, you got to be a pretty face and sing. Yeah. That's why you're the front man for Media Made. Woo. You're fired. Ric Flair. No Ric Flair wooings here. All right. So we're going to open up our discussion with a song called. Take the time. This has never sounded more like school. <laughs> All right, so Take the Time actually features lyrics by the band's four instrumentalists. So they purposely wanted to write a song all together, featuring lyrics for all of them, because this is a song about them and their quest to find a new singer mm, and all of the creative issues that they went on during uh, the you know the years between when Dream and Day Unite and Images and Words. So you've got lyrics by guitarist John Petrucci, mm-hmm. keyboardist Kevin Moore, drummer Mike Portnoy, and bassist John Mayung. And I kind of wanted to like focus on the different verses to identify like some common, I don't know, like common creative choices that each of these men make, right? Because they all have a very interesting lyrical voice, musical voice. And I kind of want to just like explain, you know, where they're coming from. All right. So um, I, I assume you have the lyrics up. You know what they say about assuming? You'd be correct. Woo. <laughs> I'm going to do the Rick Flair woo so much today. Why? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So verse one of... Take the Time was written by Mike Portnoy. Okay. This is actually, this song marks the first lyrical contributions by Portnoy and John Myung, the bassist. So these are the first words we've got from Mike Portnoy. And you'll hear this in a lot of Dream Theater songs, especially songs written by Mike Portnoy. He loves samples, like random samples that like, I don't know, sell the theme of the album that he's working on. He likes getting spoken words from other people like guest like spoken word bits right so this song opens with a few samples and then his verses What we just heard there is like new voice, new voice, new way, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel like he, they're they're they are setting up the subject matter of the song right away, right? Right. The song is about hey, we're searching for a new singer and it sucks, and <laughs> <laughs> we we're being told we made to, art out of it. We're being told to like wait, like hurry up and wait, almost, right? yeah. Which is the most frustrating thing as a creative person. If you've got creative like juices flowing, to being told to like 
hold hold off. Take yeah. your time. This is what we have to do. And it's like, but I want to go right now. Let's do it. So that that opening verse there started with samples from Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin'. Where, hold it now. <laughs> uh, Frank Zappa's Dancing Fool. Wait a minute. And Public Enemy's Power to the People. Come on. <laughs> Which are like, I feel like Mike Portnoy is like saying these are like phrases that were told to him. Or, like, that he heard around him during this, like, whirlwind okay. time, right? Like, hold it now, wait a minute, come on, uh, <laughs> hurry up and wait. That's very well captured. I need a new voice, new, a new law, law a new, new way. way. Take the time, reevaluate. That's what the song's about. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, what I was getting from it, too, was just kind of, like, figuring out the new normal, I guess, for lack of a better... I mean, that's the thing that we are all saying right now, but just the new way to go. I actually really enjoyed the four lines just before um, he gets in talking about the voice, the, just let me catch my breath. I've ha- I've heard the promises. I've seen the mistakes. I've had my fair share of tough breaks. Because I didn't know what the song was about reading it the first time. This made me think of a book I'm actually reading <laughs> with my book club. Okay. Um, but this kind of like, it painted a really good picture of this kind of someone who has just been through, okay, I'm thinking about the book, but a battle, but it's been through something um, difficult, whatever that may be, just a difficult situation. And that moment we all can feel when we like exit the situation and we know we just have, we're about to step into a next one, right? Like, like if we had a, if I, we had a rough day at work and then I'm leaving, but then it's two hours of traffic to get home. Yeah. And you're just like, just let me catch my breath. Like there's sometimes while I was just like, I'm just going to sit in my car for 15 minutes because 15 minutes is not going to make a difference before I start going. And I, it's a very like palpable um, picture he's painting, but emotion that like is being felt from those words. I yeah. Think. Another thing I appreciate is how frustrated he sounds. Yeah. The speaker of this verse, which is Mike Portnoy. Mike, Mike, if you don't know Mike Portnoy, he is probably the most outspoken, like public facing member of the band. For pretty much its whole existence, you know, like, um, he was, he constantly gave interviews. He constantly, uh, you know, is very, like, he's, he's a very, like, strong public voice for the band. Right. So in some ways, even more than the lead singer, which is kind of different for a metal band, right? But the dude's in the back <clears throat> drumming, so you, he's not up front and center on stage, but he's up front and center on MTV. Right. Uh, you know, with the press. Um, so he is, like, if he's upset, he's going to tell you. He's like, <laughs> dude. This search for a new singer sucks. Working with this label sucks. Um, I want to write music and I can't, and it sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> How old are they at this point? Twenty like somethings. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's invalid what you're saying. Yeah, but it feels about the age feels about right. Yeah, that that's so that's the like impression I get from the first verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second verse is written by John Myung, who, as I said, is in real life very quiet. Very disciplined. Uh, he hates interviews. He hates being on camera. That's what. That's my impression of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he doesn't write a lot of songs, like okay. lyric wise, right? right? But when he does, like it's like people really take notice. It's like, oh, John's got something to say. Right? <laughs> I feel like it's like you're in a crowded room and like the quiet person starts talking. When the attention. quiet person starts talking, it's like everyone be quiet. Yeah, John. John has something to say. Like, what does he have to say? Right. Um. So this this is the John verse.
few things about this verse. It seems like he's trying to fit so many words in so many <laughs> syllables, right? Like becomes slightly rap. It's almost like, you know, you have a lot of like important things you have to say, but you don't have a lot of time to say it, so you're just kind of like just kind of like get it out, right. right? I feel like that that's what this reads like to me. But um just to break that down a little bit. It says like the unbroken spirit obscured and disquiet finds dark finds clearness this trial demands, right? Mhm. Unbroken spirit obscured and disquiet sounds like the person who is writing these lyrics, right? Right. The man who is usually very meek and quiet, right? Mm-hmm. And but there's like noise all around him and he's being asked to like make a lot of tough decisions. So he's like, okay, I just need to find peace and clearness in this trial ahead. Yeah. Cuz that's what this thing demands. Right. To make this thing anything, I need to find my center. That makes sense. And then even even as he's saying it, uh, Even hearing, as you're saying, like, amongst all this noise I've got to find, the fact that he's saying unbroken spirit, obscured and disquiet, like, even though the spirit is, like, hidden behind all of this stuff and this hurry-ups and this slow-downs and stuff, it's not a broken spirit. Right. Um, And so that is John Myung. And then right after the John Myung part, we've got um, verse 3 that is written by guitarist John Petrucci. John Petrucci? We've heard some of his songs before. Right. He was the one who wrote The Killing Hand. Right. The very dense, progressive uh, story song. Right. Uh, So (laughs) he's got big ideas, John. Um, And I feel like when he's writing, like when he's writing from the heart and when he's like writing like, I think, thoughtful lyrics about the human condition, that's when he exceeds the most. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when he's the most confident and that's when he writes the most beautiful lyrics. And, And I think here his, his... His lyrics come through. Okay. If there's a pensive fear, a wasted year, a man must learn to cope. If his obsession's real, suppression that he feels must turn to hope. Right? Mm-hmm. Very simple message. Yeah, I highlighted all four of those lines. Yeah, what'd you get out of that? No, I just thought it was really pretty, and it was, like, a really good, firm statement. You know, um, the like, the idea, right, where, like, that the fear is wasted time, and time, like, gathers, right? Like, I can be like, oh, man, I wasted three hours of my time, but to say I wasted a year... Or even with this, right? It's a pinch of fear. Like, the year hasn't even been completed yet. Yeah. You know, like, the beginning of a worldwide lockdown. And we're like, oh, we're only being here for, like, three or four weeks. A year. year. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, oh, okay. A man must learn to cope. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But imagine for this guy, it's like, for him, they had just, like... They lost their singer, right? And they're told we can't make music or release albums or really perform until we get a new one. And it took a year. Yeah. So I can imagine as a young professional, it's like I lost a I lost a year of my professional life. Yeah. And In I just like prime. <laughs> and it's like I think this is his, you know, conclusion on reflecting on that. It's like you just gotta learn to cope. Yeah. I but even with that, right? Like the the last part when you're or the next part, if his obsession's real 
Um, which it is. Which these, it, yeah. these men are very obsessed with, you know, their music. Like, in a good way. It's like, they're, yeah. they're passionate. And they are. But I think even, right, like, but the obsession with the fear, the obsession with thinking about it, mm. of, like, lingering on this, um, it doesn't lead to, right? Like, that's not the way to cope, right? A man must learn to cope. It's saying a man must learn to cope if um, his obsession is real. And then they're saying the way to cope, right? Suppression that he... Suppression that he feels must be turned to hope, right? You need to, I I think even in saying this, right? Like being so caught up in how long it's taking and how it's affecting your professional career, but your literal dream that not a lot of people get to like break into after having already broken into it. Like you have to, at that point, catch yourself, right? Right. And, and change that into something to hope for. And I like, he does very, like you're saying, right? Like it, this, it works for him. His like peeking into the human condition to, pull out his lyrics yes and then the song slows down a little bit and we get the bridge which is written by kevin moore now kevin moore i will say this and i think a lot of fans will agree with me is the best lyricist dream theater has ever had (laughs) um he just has a way with connecting with people with the words that he writes okay i don't know like something i think me and him would probably get along I don't know. Just something about it. Like, I th- I feel like his struggles are, like, my struggles, right? Yeah. Like, the dude, he's very reflective and contemplative, and, like, he's constantly thinking about life and his placement in the world, and, like, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this in the next song we talk about, but, like, the dude's just, like, the dude's uh, a thinker. Yeah. I was gonna... Pensive is really... Yeah. <laughs> the word that we, he, we just used from, um, John. Right. So, the song slows down for him. I can see much clearer now that I'm blind. I feel like that is a very, like, I don't know. It's just such a nice, poignant point, right? Like, when when the world around you is just getting out of control, like, sometimes the best thing to do is just to, like, stay reserved. You know, like, mm-hmm. retreat back and just, like, close yourself off and, like, just get your own mind under control before you can even confront it. Yeah. As an introvert, that is what I must do. <laughs> and I, 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 something, the way he speaks about his relationship with the world, Kevin Moore, uh, I identify with. It's like, yes, I also need to, like, shut myself off from the world. And that's when I can see the most clearly. It's yeah. when I'm blind to everything else. Right? Yeah. Says, Drown the beat of time, let my senses fall away. Right? That is totally what I identify <laughs> with. I think it is very beautiful. And, like, like you said, poignant, because I think the, it's like... A thing that's understood, right, where you're, if you really want to see something or, like, be able to focus on something, you cut out everything else. I think that that's the beauty of that line right there. The, um, I can see so much clearer now that I'm blind. Like, there are just times where we're doing too much and we're like, okay, what do I want to get done? What need, what is, what needs to be trimmed out of my life? Yep. And, like, I don't know, like, sometimes, like, close my mind uh, is, like, the, the mantra I have sometimes. Like, <laughs> sometimes I just get, get the heck away from everybody. Yes. Take a walk, get away from everybody in Even the dark. Me. Take a take a shower in the dark. You know, take off your clothes. <laughs> no, 
It's like the I, I bet you like you know the 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 sensory deprivation chambers are like Shangri La for some people. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that is. I wanted to open with that song um, just because it gives you a little you know looking glass into the psyche of the four uh, instrumentalists in the band. Um, after Kevin Moore's bridge, uh, we get like four to five minutes of just instrumental. Yeah, we do. Yeah, <laughs> and that's going to be a common theme. These. Other than the chorus, these band members, they love to jam. It's a jam. It's a jam. Um, so um, we will talk more about the impeccable musical talent of these men, as we've talked about in 1989. But before that, I want to jump into the next song, which is Pull, Pull Me, Me Under. Under. We opened with this, um, but the intro is long, so it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about the making of this song. So, Pull Me Under started life as an eight-minute instrumental demo called Oliver's Twist. Boo! Um, Oliver and company are nothing. Pull Me Under is their greatest hit. (laughs) (laughs) I I talked about this before, but when Dream Theater released their Greatest Hits album, they called it Greatest Hit and 21 Other Cool Songs (laughs) because they only had one... Hit. And it was this one. It was Pull Me Under. Oh, wow. So Pull Me Under was released as the first single for Images and Words, received positive critical reception and extensive MTV rotation, and it's the band's only top 10 hit on Billboard's Hot Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. Mike Portnoy would call it a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they never had it. Like, they, they have had be- better-selling albums, mm-hmm. but never a top 10 hit again. Hmm. Like, hit single. Very much the definition of a happy yeah. little accident. So this song is, like, their signature song. This they is, play it at every... They play they, it at dang... I've heard this song probably more than any other Dream Theater song live, and I've seen them live several times. Um, they usually close with it, or it's, like, with it's either in their encore set or they close their main set with it. Mm. And then they'll come in and do an encore after. Right. Um, so that is the... Like, or, like, you know, the importance of Pull Me Under. Okay. So Pull Me Under was Pull also... Under. It was written by... The lyrics were written by uh, Kevin Moore, the mm-hmm. keyboardist, uh, the guy I identify with. <laughs> um, and it was inspired by Shakespeare's Hamlet. I never would have been able to guess that. I didn't know until, like, doing the research for this show. Really? Yeah. The last line of the song is from Hamlet's soliloquy. It is. And I never really cared that much about it. Wow. The the final song, like the final moments of the song are, oh, this, oh, that this This too, too solid flesh would melt. What? You're saying it wrong. Oh, what is it? Oh, that this too, too sully, well, okay, it says solid, but it's sully flesh, sullied flesh would melt. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I I really didn't know that I have I am a I have an English degree. Uh huh. I have been assigned Hamlet many times. It's been on our shelf for three years, and I never read it. I never cared to read it. I had enough skill to BS my way through it whenever asked about it, and <laughs> I didn't have to read it. So after doing research for the show, I decided to read a little bit of it, and I have some thoughts on Pull Me Under. We'll listen to the the, the singing here when it starts. Lost in the sky. Clouds 
Okay, so um, some symbolic references to Hamlet in this song include slings and arrows, the image of the sparrow, and the phrase, I am too much in the sun. <laughs> Those are all straight from the play. Yeah. Like, it sounds like you're the Hamlet expert nope. here. Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I, I read a little bit of Hamlet. I, I, I went and read some of the, like, more popular soliloquies. I read some of the where the allusions in the song came from. Right, and so, like listening to the song without knowing that it's Hamlet, I can still identify with like the main points of the the song. Right, right. Okay. Lyrically, to me, it's it's more existentialism than anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Kevin Moore talking about like the I don't know, just the uncertainty of life itself. Right. Just like Ham, like we were talking to our teacher friend. Right. Uh, <laughs> he teaches high school English, and he he's been reading Hamlet with his kids. And, like, he would describe Hamlet as the most human literary character ever. Mm. Because the guy has complex emotions that he's struggling with throughout the whole play, right? Yeah. Hamlet, his father has died. His uncle has taken the throne, uh, married his mother. And so, not only... His uncle has married his mother. He has not married his mother. (laughs) To clarify. So, Hamlet not only has lost his father, right? Uh, He's being confronted with death. So, perhaps the first time, right? He's then visited by his father who's asked him, I need you to avenge my death because I was murdered by my, my brother. Yeah. So Hamlet is struggling with life and death, right and wrong, the knowledge, the knowledge of death or even the knowledge that my, my uncle killed my father, right? Right. Like Kevin Moore, the keyboardist here, the, the songwriter, he uses sleep imagery imagery. Constantly. In most of his songs, he uses imagery of sleep and dreaming. And I feel like in this song, it's like, I would rather be asleep than, <laughs> than um, like, have this, everything else that's going around, going surrounding me, right? Right. And I think Hamlet was, he was expressing the same ideas, right? You, you see the famous, you know, to be or not to be, right? Um, there's sleep imagery in that soliloquy because Hamlet is saying, in some ways, I wish I could just go back to sleep, right? Not f- literally, but like, I wish I just didn't go have back the- to that innocence, didn't have that yes, knowledge. Exactly. And I feel like removed from Hamlet, Kevin Morris discuss- discussing the exact same ideas. Yeah. Right? Like, um, I-, I-, I pulled some lyrics out because, you know, I, I identify with this song quite a lot, <laughs> right? Um, this world is spinning around me. This world is spinning without me. And every day, every day since future to past, every day leaves me one less to my last. Right? Yeah. It's like this, he's having like a midlife crisis in his twenties or whatever. <laughs> Just a regular crisis. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's 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 realizing that his he's getting older. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, my, my my days in this world are numbered, right? And like think things move out of my control. I I am. Time just moves on with or without me. Yeah. And, like, I don't know how to... Cope co- with that. Co- confront it. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, it's better just to, like, just go to sleep, right? Like, I love the sleep... To me, like, sleep imagery, especially, like, in my more depressed times, right? Sometimes just, like, I just, I just want to go take a nap, you know? I, I would rather be unconscious than living with whatever it is I'm struggling with right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, depression, uh, loneliness... Isolation, uh, stress. All those fun ones. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, I would rather just go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and sleep is like this inner peace, but 
then you wake up and it all comes crashing right yeah. back down on you, you know, and it's like the, the pull me underline, it's like the waves, you know, crashing down on him. Yeah. Of, of each thing. Yes. Right. Like, cause you don't get to actually sleep through it. Yeah. I also think that like this in, in uh hand with the last song uh, that we talked about, I feel like, because I, I, the line I highlighted as well, the line, um, Every day sends future to pass. Every breath leaves me one less to my last. And I wonder if all of this was triggered by the thought of like, uh, yeah, we'll find a new singer soon. Two months in. Yeah, we're probably on the musk six months in. This has been a while. Like that kind of like audibly seeing time ticking, seeing your like dream fading, seeing like whatever it may, you know, it may be because I think that like, especially in industries like this, yeah, you broke the scene, you have a fandom, but if you don't, like, produce something, especially very early on, yeah. you're just going to lose all of that. Um, and I can see this, like, being one of the waves crashing over him and what what prompted a lot of the song, I think. Yeah. And uh, the, the Sparrow Falls, right, um, is a line from Hamlet. That comes at the end of the play when Hamlet is being asked by... Uh, a companion or somebody like uh the only one who doesn't die as <laughs> i don't know the context unfortunately i didn't read that far in but like, <laughs> I, did, I did read the end and i read hamlet's words and he's like aren't you concerned about this or that And it's like i, I i've found peace with life it's like the sparrow falls he, things die yeah right? that's just a fact of life that is nature working right right and i i can no longer be concerned about feeling like you know, nature or life is out of my control because it's just like in control of like God is in control or nature's in control. That is just the way of life. Right. So he's come to terms with existence. Right. right? It's like, and that he has no control (laughs) in it. So he's found peace in like, yeah, the, the sparrow falls, things die. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think maybe Kevin Moore is, you know, he, he admires that in Hamlet. Yeah, I think that even, like, Kevin wrote the line in the song just before this, right, where it's, close your eyes and you can uh, find all that you need your mind, yep. close your eyes. Yep. And this is very much what it is, right? Like, even as you talk about Hamlet, we're not going to spend a lot of time. In, this is not a backdoor pilot either for books. <laughs> you, um, you said it, I didn't. I said it's not. <laughs> but um, We're not talking about books from whenever Shakespeare was alive. <laughs> no, we're not going that far back. Yes, 300 episodes on books. <laughs> Um, but like, um, yeah, yeah. So the, the, that comes with, right. Like all the responsibilities that had been put on him at the very beginning, right. Like in this, like, okay, well, we were just talking about like you close your, you choose to close your eyes so you can see clearly the things you need to. And at the beginning, he's just like a prince who has uh, come back from, well, he's come for his dad's funeral, but he was away like at school. (laughs) And now he's like. My dad's dead, so I have to deal with that. My mom's remarried, I have to deal with that. To my uncle, have to deal with that. I'm sad. Oh, my dad's ghost is telling me that he was murdered by my uncle and that I have to avenge him because his wife definitely won't. All right. Like, all these different things. And by the, like, that he's taking on, like, he's saying, like, I have to, who's not going, like, it was given to me. And this at the end saying, like, mm, things die. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to now as well. Spoilers, that's how it ends. (laughs) (laughs) 
But yes. Oh, and speaking of that, that it transitions very nicely into the end of the song. Ah. So the end of the song, um, there's you know, uh, j- it, just like with the other songs that we're going to talk about, there's a extended jam session in this song. We, we we'll talk more about instrumentation a little later, but. Um, So in a very progressive rock, progressive metal kind of way, like it just kind of has this steady pace, right? And it has the the, the same riff, and then elements are layered onto it, right? So you right. can hear the guitar, and then you can hear the the keyboards kind of going in and like doing that, right? The the orchestra sounding very dramatic, right? And then the the singer is going to come in here in a second and start chanting words from the play itself, the ones that you <laughs> and I both butchered. <laughs> and then it just ends. That's <laughs> it. Well, so there's a few reasons for that, right? It, it the the song just abruptly ends. Yeah, it does. right. It just it just you're just like that was weird. Why did they do that? Why so, did they choose this way? Here's a quote from Mike Portnoy, the drummer. Uh, he said, "We all had this tension, and it just kept building and building, and we had no idea where to take it, you know. So we decided to just pull the plug on it, just like the Beatles did with She's So Heavy. Okay. So one, it's a musical nerd reference." <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah, let's just do what the Beatles did, right? Um, two, it sold the ideas of Hamlet, right? Like the yeah. themes presented in Hamlet, like themes of life and death, right? The uncertainty of life. Yeah. Um, the abruptness of death. <laughs> so the song ends abruptly just like a life can. <laughs> so it fits. And I feel like, that, you know, hey, it's it's weird progressive rock nonsense, and I love it. But it works, and you love it. Yeah. They knew who they were writing for. They're writing for people who like when people break the rules. Yes. Musically. And this song broke the rules. They released this in the year you were born because you're a rule breaker. And, uh, you know, they, they did, when, when this song was released for Guitar Hero, they added a, an appropriate ending, I guess. What, what what was it? It was just you know just a more tr- just a oh. more traditional ending with like a you know <laughs> I don't know bombastic ending. You're like okay, <laughs> but hey, that's pull me under. Pull me under. That's exactly how it's saying. It is not. You guys just heard it. All right, so the next song we're going to talk about um, another very very popular Dream Theater song, the song that ends almost every single concert that they do, Metropolis Part One, The Miracle and the Sleeper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this song was written by John Petrucci, sing guy who wrote "The Killing Hand" from "When Dream and Day Unite." We talk. We we tried to dissect "The Killing Hand" and talk about the story because this this is another story song. It's an epic, trying to tell a story with characters, and it's just as confusing, if not more confusing, than yeah, The Killing Hand and other story songs that John <laughs> Petrucci will try to write. And I don't even have John Petrucci to explain it to us this time. John! 
in a in a I was I was listening to an interview that he did last year about this this album and its follow up, uh, and he was like, I don't even know what it's about. Like, that's the best way. Yeah, he's like, as a writer, that's the best. It's way. like it sounded good at the time. You know, it was the same <laughs> idea that the Killing Hand had. <laughs> so. A lot of my, the way I can explain this song's story is based on the context of its follow-up, Metropolis Part Mm 2, which was released in 99. Metropolis tells the story of two characters, the Miracle and the Sleeper, who are linked telepathically over time and space. Okay. Yeah. There's one line that kind of sells that, and it's, there's no freedom, the both of you will be confined... To one mind, or to this mind. This mind. Okay. So here, here's interesting. I did not encounter this during my research, but this just popped into my mind. I read somewhere and can confirm that John Petrucci was inspired by, for this song, the film, the 1991 neo-noir film, Dead Again, starring Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I've seen Dead Again okay. because of its connections with Dream Theater. And now that I'm like starting to like put the pieces together, I'm like, okay, maybe I can put shine a little bit more light on what he was thinking when he was writing the song. The right. movie deal it's it's a it's a pretty okay romantic, like neo noir kind of movie, right? It's got okay. a, it's got a romance, it's got like a mystery, but it deals with past life regression and like amnesia. Oh, so the characters like go to a psych, like a psychology, uh, psychiatric psych- ward. No, no, no. They they go to like like a medium or like a, a oh a hypnotist, right? Who puts them in a trance and lets them live out their past life, mm-hmm. right? And their past life is a woman who was murdered. Oh, and this this man who's living in the present day is able to see her life before the murder and is helping like solve this unsolved case at the time. And it's like very trippy, (laughs) very weird. And I think that is also some of the ideas that John Petrucci was floating around at the time. Mm. You know, ideas of the past life. Yeah. This connection with someone in the past, you know, whatever, whether, whether it be spiritual or just, you know, psychological or what. Um, That's interesting. I mean, it's not that I didn't, like, get that there were, like, two persons that were uh, enmeshed. I just <laughs> didn't get the, the two persons that you were referring to. Yeah. So the first, the first verse, like the, the smile of dawn, or what, arrived what? in early May. She carried a gift from her home. Right, she carried a gift from her home. Right, yeah. that is the character of the miracle. Okay, right now, I think where this song excels more than other story songs that John Petrucci will try to write is it's a little more ambiguous, left mm-hmm. to interpretation. Yeah, sometimes with a song that's telling a story, sometimes that's the best kind. That's the best way to do it, right? Yeah. Leave it up to interpretation. Let people draw their own connections, right? I, I was reading some theories on what these verses mean. Mm-hmm. She carries a gift from her home, meaning this is a young mother. Oh, okay. She's just given birth to a daughter. 
Okay. Is that like a a line he picked up from somewhere or he's he made that up? I, I just a theory that some you know, and it, it kinda connects again with the follow up Metropolis Part Two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh verse two, what what's the what's the second verse start with like The night shed a tear to tell her of fear and of sorrow and pain she'll never outgrow. So maybe this child had died? Possibly? Maybe. See, this is interesting because I, because I didn't read it as a child at all. These this this first five lines I highlighted because I I liked it. I don't know. The smile of dawn ar- arrived in early May. She carried a gift from her home. The night um, shed a tear to tell her of fear and sorrow and pain. She'll never outgrow. Death is the first dance, eternal. And so when I was reading it, I definitely didn't read anything about a small child. <laughs> and I was rather just reading, I, I read it as a young girl coming into this knowledge of life and death. I almost said carnal knowledge. That means a very <laughs> different thing. The carnal knowledge of death. Well, I mean, I guess everyone has their kink. Ooh. But <laughs> that's why I'm saying this song, this song is up for interpretation. It, it could be just as a young female character. That is troubled in some way, right? Yeah. Confronting death in some way. Yeah. Death of someone around her, the knowledge of death. There's no more freedom. It could be any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting to hear the interpretation that you you found. Yeah. Because I was like, uh, I don't think that's the gift she covered for him. And (laughs) and, and that's the thing. It It, it doesn't mean anything. It could be whatever you want. And then we got verse two, which follows the sleeper character. I was told that there's a miracle for each day that I try. What is it? Yeah. I was told there's there's a miracle for each day that I try. I was told there's a new love that's born for each one that has died. I was, I was told, told when you drove. Blah, blah, blah. I was told there'd be no one to call on when I feel alone. And I afraid. was told when you dream of the next world. Yep. You'll find yourself swimming in a lake of fire. Uh, anyway, uh, so that is the sleeper character. Now, two different people, right? Mm-hmm. How they're connected, we don't know. The song doesn't tell us. All we know is that there's this character that's been taught a lot of lessons and doesn't know how to... Enact them or, like, really realize them? Or understand them, uh, articulate them, or... Um, Live them. Reconcile with them. Okay. And so... Uh, one. The same guy who was, you know, giving his interpretation of the song. He was saying that because there's, like, dance. There are three dances listed in, in this song as yeah. well. We already talked about the first one. Death is the first dance eternal. Deceit is the second without end, right? Yes. Deceit is the second dance. So they were saying the sleeper character, when confronted with these troubles of life, right? And like, all of these, like, he's been taught lessons, but he doesn't know how to reconcile with them, and he doesn't know how to enact them. So he just gives up he isolates himself mm-hmm. he goes to sleep 
so to say. <laughs> Lots right? of sleeping in this album. Yeah, because there, there are verses that talk about, like, shutting people out and isolating. Is there not? No. <laughs> okay. Not, like, like tr- not really isolation, no. In, in any case, he's deceived himself in some way, right? Right. I think some people have read that he's isolated himself away, or he's, like, refused to accept the responsibilities before him, or... Uh, Something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I could, I guess, sort of, because the line leading up to the the lyric about deceit is somewhere like a scene from a memory. There's a picture worth a thousand words, eluding stares from faces before me. It hides away and will never be heard of again. Deceit is the second without end. Yeah. So it could be the sleeper, right? This person. I guess. It conceals itself away or whatever. <laughs> Um, I'm no longer in college. I don't have to pull this up. Because my brain is like, I mean, it could be, but the sleeper was referred to as I the whole time. What is the meaning of... We are not doing that. (laughs) But here's another thing. The scene from a memory, right? Like this this picture worth a thousand words. That, I think, helps sell the idea that these are two characters that are separated in some way, right? Yeah. They never meet each other, but they're connected telepathically or mentally, uh, spiritually in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he can feel her presence like a scene from a memory. Yeah. Somehow, right? That makes me think of a movie that I'm going to make you watch that you're going to hate because it it does do that thing where it's like these two people are connected. They they don't really realize it. They can see each other through each other's eyes. I think that might be the title of the movie. Like, they can see what's going on and sometimes the worlds cross and they get confused where they're like... I'm just walking down the street. Why is somebody driving their car into me kind of thing? Um, And why is it snowing where I'm living in a desert? But I think that um, this even makes sense. Like the, the fact that they're connected and it's saying, I was told this, I was told that I was told this, but he, but uh, sleeper is also saying, but I'm asleep (laughs) that like, it's so much input to be like having another life in your head that he like you're the, it's the stress reaction just like there is a miracle i was told there is a miracle and that miracle is like uh living their life i was told that if you dream it's of the next world so in his dreams he's going to sleep to see her life right oh i just wanted to say like if that's the the case what i just said about the whole thing it makes the deceit is the second without end like the idea that you're falling in love with this person who you're seeing through their eyes you're seeing all these things but then if she does have a child out of nowhere then like i thought we were to you know this kind of thing i thought we had a real connection maybe she's not even aware of their connection if he as he is but like feeling that betrayal without end because you can't stop. You're connected, right? Like you can't stop the, the mental connection of being uh, linked and interwoven. Yeah. Um, but then, right, like maybe running away from it, which is more or less the, the final verse. The third, the third arrives before the leaves have are fallen, which if we begin in May, the leaves start to fall in like 
September. I don't know. Dates. <laughs> Depends on where you are. Autumn. Autumn. Um, before we lock before we lock the doors, there must be the third and last dance. This one will last forever. Metropolis watches you thoughtfully and smiles. Uh, she is taking you to your home. So thinking like like that, right? Like this kind of like the sleeper would go to sleep to hide away from his own life to mm-hmm. uh, participate in hers. But now there's the deceit in that. And he like wakes up and it talks about how the city is, is bad and blah, blah, blah. But like getting through that so that you can do this last part, which is love, right? Which is yeah. move on to have a more like mature understanding of what it really means to be in someone's life. Right. I don't know. I just made up a lot of stuff. I'm very tired right now, kids. <laughs> and I f- again, that is the... That could be the character arc of both of these characters. You've got the miracle and the sleeper. Whatever their issues are in life, the conclusion that they come to, the resolution is they encounter love. However they do, right? But, yeah, one is a bodyguard. This is how they encounter love. <laughs> um, so, the um, to me, like just looking at all the lyrics in this way, I think at the very least it sells the idea of like, this universal human existence that we all live, right? Like the, the mm. human condition is universal, right? Yeah. We all encounter the same issues that the miracle and the sleeper do, right? Confronted with death and deceiving ourselves. Deceiving. But we all seek love and understanding. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's just like really dense with stuff. Yeah. It's pretty dense. Yes. Ho-ho. Very dense. And he's thrown a lot of ideas out there, and some of them stick and some of them don't. <laughs> and I think that's the issue with this song. And he'll, they'll find, they'll strike the right chord in like seven years when they do the follow up to Metropolis mm. Part One. They do Metropolis <laughs> Part Two, and it's done much better. <laughs> You're like, ah, this is what I meant. So the Part One thing, actually. So Part One's in the title again. It's Metropolis Part One: The Miracle and the Sleeper. It was originally just a joke. <laughs> Mm. And no sequel was ever intended. <laughs> Apparently, like, John Petrucci had seen that Rush had done something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, Neil Peart of Rush had written a song that had part four in, it, in the title for, like, no reason. <laughs> and he's like, that sounds fun. I'm just going to do that, you know? It, just, <laughs> it makes a song seem more important than it is. Yeah. If you add a part one to it. I totally get that. Yeah. So that's what he did. And then fan support grew. And they said, okay, we're going to do a follow-up one day. <laughs> and they did. They did. Seven years later. But we've neglected it until now because I wanted to really focus on some of the, you know, the, the storytelling and the words and the, you know, the, the poetry of some of these men. But Dream Theater, the, the, the lyrics and all that stuff, just as important or more important is the music, the instruments. <laughs> so <laughs> Metropolis Part 1 is like notorious and like very well regarded for its musicians, musicianship, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to play some of the, this apparently is some of the most complex and hardest to play music out there. And these guys are like hitting it. Okay. So we're going to start there again. Lay this, it on me, daddy. This song is nine minutes, 30 seconds. Are we listening to all of it right no, now? No, it, it's got, you know, <laughs> it's got two to three to four minutes of just straight music instrumentation, but I'm going to play the, like the craziest part. Right here. Mm-hmm. 
apparently like the beat that they're playing mm -hmm. and they're like switching it up right like if you listen to the guitar and they're just like kind of like playing off each other and it sounds like dissident and weird yeah I can yeah yeah now I hear what you're saying it, like it sounds a little like electronic or bit to me and then apparently right here, it's like every musician is like playing something different. Like they're playing on like random notes that the other guys aren't playing on. And it's like, like this part. Apparently this is very hard to play live. And this gives a lot of musicians a lot of trouble to play this. Do people try to cover it? Oh yeah, there's ah. a bunch of like YouTube videos of people like either nailing it or like failing miserably, <laughs> flipping several tables. Yeah, like this is like th when Dream Theater had to audition for another drummer way down the line. They auditioned people, and this was the test. <laughs> the song to was see like, how long they could yeah, handle. Yeah, it's like, hey, can you can you can you play this song with us, and can you nail it? And if they couldn't, they're just like. I'm done. You know, it's like we need failed. a whiplash or we need nothing. Yes, exactly. So I just again, I just wanted to highlight just some of the crazy musicianship of these men, because that is just as important as like the, the, the ideas and the poetry that they do. Yeah. You can definitely see in this moment, moments like these, why they like the rest of the album is or the other two songs that we listen to the album are just kind of like lamenting on not being able to move their careers forward. They're like, but look at all the things we can do. Look at all the music we've written. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to close out this segment with what I consider the true epic of the album. 11 minutes, 30 seconds. It's called Learning to Live. So a few things I want to talk about with this song. First things first, it is a John Mayung song. As I talked about earlier, when John Mayung wants to write a song, you just let him. Yeah. The way he operates is like, they basically, they write these songs as instrumentals first most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like the guys will all sit down, they'll, they'll jam together, they'll develop a song instrumentally. And then once that's done, they'll say, okay, I want that song, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll write lyrics for that song. Oh, that song's cool. I want to write lyrics for that song, right? John Mayung usually is like pretty quiet. He won't say anything. Mm -hmm. If there's a song that he likes, he's like... I want it. And they're like, you can have it. Stand back. Give it to him. <laughs> give it. The man wants it. And he'll write a song because if he has thoughtful things to say, he'll say it. Yeah. And I think I, what I admire most about John Myung songs is like, there's just so like to the point. Mm. I feel like he, when he, to he, the point, there's no faff with his songs, it's right? It's 12 minutes long. I'm talking about the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying like, what I mean is his lyrics means something to him, mm -hmm. right? There's no obligation in writing the lyrics, right? right? You know, some sometimes it's like, we got all these songs, we need to write lyrics. It's just like, we'll just write about it. Like one time, John Petrucci wrote a song about writer's block because he couldn't write any lyrics, mm. you know? It's like, that's that's the kind of issues you run into. With John Myung, it's like, no, no, no. I have something to say this time and I'm going to say it. And usually <sighs> it's like, yeah. That's a really good song. So, That's really so I want to rather yeah. than like under pressure. <laughs> yeah, I want I want you to highlight the lyrics for us. What do you got? Uh, I really thought it was a very strong open. Like the song just started, we can just hear the lyrics right now. There was no time for pain, no air. 
But um, there was no time for pain, no energy for fear. The sightlessness of hatred slips away. Walking through winter streets alone, he stops and takes a breath with confidence and self-control. I like can't even tell you what that's about, but I was like, I read that four or five times. I was like, yes. I feel like he's he's writing about himself, you know, no confidence or self-control, right? It says with confidence, with and confidence and self-control. Yeah, I think maybe that's what he's searching for, or like mm-hmm. he he's he's finding that within himself. He's like he's like reassuring himself. Yeah, I, he seems like from what you've said, very self-controlled and yes. self-contained. Yes. But maybe having that with confidence. Yeah. But um, he's searching for confidence. But whatever it's like setting up, right? Like the song is called Learning to Live. <laughs> but even how it opens, saying that there's no time for pain, there's no energy for uh, anger, and that um, the like sightlessness of hatred slips away, sightlessness of hatred slipping away, like just the meaninglessness of it. Yeah. And saying, like, I'm letting go our. He, the he character here is just letting go of those things. Like we're just starting off, right? It's called learning to live. How am I going to do that? By letting go of the things that are triggering me to hate, by not even giving a second of energy to anger, by not acknowledging the pain at this moment, acknowledging that there is pain, but not taking this time right now to to um, work through it. Yeah. Rather... Uh, stopping to take a breath with confidence and self-control, and then we really get into the song. And right. I just was like, oh, okay, that's nice. Yeah. I did <laughs> so, like so. Here's the thing: I, the John Mayung, John Petrucci, um, and, and Mike Porno. I think they're all uh, self-professed Christians. You know, mm-hmm. um, John Mayung. I think brings a lot of that. And John Petrucci too. They bring a lot of their like spiritual lives into their music. You know, um, and I feel like this song has a very like christian spiritual edge to it you know Mm -hmm. like it's a man wrestling with his own inadequacies or his own um like sinfulness i guess for lack of a better word yeah and he's trying to like navigate that world he's like trying to better himself right learning to live Mm -hmm. learning to live the way i want to live right yeah like by the standards i've set for myself yeah so it, it starts out, he says, I, I look at the world and see no understanding. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for some to find some sense of strength, right? He's mm-hmm. like, I'm confronted with this really, like, dark, scary world, right? And there's, like, he, he says, like, uh, when temptation brings me to my knees, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm confronted with the sins of life or, uh, you know... Uh, the trials, the tribulations, yeah. the hurdles. The man is being confronted with fame too. You know, yeah. even as little fame as they had, you know, at the time, it's like I'm sure that brought its own temptations that he yeah. had to confront, right? And so, what? It's almost like a prayer, right? Yeah. Like there, there's a point where he says, like, I lay here drained of my strength, on my knees. Show me kindness. Show me beauty. Sh- show me truth. Mm-hmm. And he repeats though that that triplet, you know. Kindness, beauty, and truth. Yeah. That's what he's like looking for. Yeah. So he's searching for understanding, kindness, beauty, and truth. And this whole song is like, that is my goal to learn to live. Yeah. The way I want to live. Yeah. I think that that is, I mean, sums it up. <laughs> but he does it, like, that's the sum of the song, but he does it in a lot of, he does it beautifully. Yeah. 
Another another line here as, as the second verse starts, you know. Same. Yeah, uh, the second verse starts with the line, uh, the 90s bring new questions, new solutions to be found, right? I like that that's even framing the song in, like, the turn of the decade that they've mm-hmm. just experienced. Like, we're in 92, yeah. and he, this guy is, like, looking at the decade ahead. He's like, dude, the 90s, like, things have changed, right? <laughs> yeah. And I have new questions and new solutions to be found, right? Like, we've talked a lot about this stuff as we've done this show even, right? New yeah. technologies world powers uh you know regimes have fallen new ones have been propped up dad guilt (laughs) dad guilt there's a lot of like new challenges to face and this poor young man who's being you know is searching for answers and all this confusion i think even in that like the part of the chorus that really stands out to me is uh in line with all this the the way your heart sounds makes all the difference. It's what decides if you'll endure the pain that we all feel. Yeah, I, I highlighted that one too. The way your heart beats makes all the difference in learning to live. <laughs> and it's just the just exactly what you're saying, right? Like, even as the, the decade has turned to a new thing, even as new technologies and new everything is happening, this idea that the focus still needs to be on you as an individual, you as a person, and this is the way to move forward even as things are changing. Uh, even noting that like you will change, but the way your heart sound is what makes the difference. The way your heart beats is what makes the difference. I yeah. agree. And it's like, what is the heart, right? It's like one's disposition, one's like compassion. Yeah, the literary heart rather than the literal heart. Right. So I, I and, and, and it, the heart should be filled with beauty, kindness, and truth. And understanding. And understanding. (laughs) Um, I I think that's the thesis of the song, right? Yeah. It's such a... Again, I feel like it's strong, to the point, personal, authentic. I believe what this is what this man is thinking and what this man has been grappling with, right? Yeah. there's There's no superficiality in this song to me. I agree. Uh, I think especially like the ending line is through nature's inflexible grace, I'm learning to live. And I think that was like one of the strongest lines as well. Be- just in what you're saying, like it's it's authentic, right? Like how do we learn how to get through this life by just butting up against life? And the idea that like life is both inflic- inflexible and graceful. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't even know how else to to describe, you know, yeah. attempting to live. That's what we're all doing. We're all learning to live. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> give, give each other a little bit of grace. All right. Inflexible grace, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, um, another thing. So that that is learning to live's lyrics, very strong. But I, something that we've neglected until now, and I did this on purpose. We haven't really talked about James Labrie as a singer because I feel like these songs, as much as he gives them the voice, they aren't really his songs. They were mm-hmm. all written before he came in. But then he like. He came in and he delivered the songs in his voice with that strong operatic, you know, yeah. tones. Tell me, what did you think of James Labrie as a singer? Because he's he's actually quite polarizing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was. He sounded like 
Rush. He, he has a very Rush. And Rush's singer, um, Getty Lee, is also quite polarizing. Yeah. I've heard people say, like, he sounds like a dying cat. Oh. <laughs> Which is very mean. Like, But that's the thing. Like, James Liberty has a very high... He, he can hit those high notes. Yeah. But he um, doesn't necessarily have the lowest register. He's, he's got a good life. range. But yeah. it's the, I think the thing is, the older he gets, the harder it is for him to, like, hit those notes... Um, consistently? Consistently. Yeah. On... Some nights live, he sounds great. Some not, some night, not, some not so much. Yeah. Um, there is a cover album that they did. One time they live on stage, they just decided as a surprise for the audience that night, we're gonna re- we're gonna perform all of Metallica's Master of Puppets for you tonight. Nice. It was just a surprise, and J- James Labrie tried. And there are some songs, some songs that sound good. Others, like dude, he can't sing Metallica. Yeah. Like it's just not good. Mm. But I think he did them justice. I think it was like well f- suited. Yeah. To it, the did it, did it stand out to you or just kind of like no? I just no. It didn't necessarily stand out. That's fine. Yeah. Did it stand? What about you? What are you on this polarized? I think he's a good singer, and I yeah. think it, the song needs to suit him. Yeah. And he he does like he is the voice of Dream Theater now, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't imagine any of these songs sung by anyone else. The man ha- has skill, though. Like Whitney, the man can hit some high notes. Okay, yeah. I don't know if he can hit some Whitney notes, <laughs> but the man can hit some high notes, and I want to highlight one here in Learning to Live. Okay. Okay, so here we go. This isn't a bit like, the song is kind of like uh, chilled out for a while. They jammed. Uh, John Petrucci played his Spanish guitar for a little while. Then James Labrie comes back with this operatic... Um, like scatting. That's oh. it's, it's not scatting. But Operatic it's just like, scatting. Yeah, it's <laughs> the best way to describe it. Vocalizing. Vocalizing. That there is an F sharp five. All right. It is the highest note that James Labrie hit in a studio recording until 2005. <laughs> <laughs> People talk about it. It's like, that's the note, man. He belts it out. <laughs> Back in the day, there was a, a guy who did like these uh, 3D animation fake commercials for Dream Theater. Mm. And it was like, buy your very own James Labrie action figure. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and one of the features on this fake action figure was, you hit the button, he'll hit the F sharp. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like the little guy will go, ah! It's cute. Yeah. So the, that 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 howl there is is quite famous because it is it is a high note that James Labrie hits very not very often, but he did it. But hey, the man he can the man note. can hit it. Yeah, he can. So anyway, yeah, the song closes here with a little bit of uh, you know a bit more jamming as is as is custom. Yeah. That you hear that right there? That piano. That Snoopy piano? Yeah. So that actually is another interesting element to images and words. Is it cre- That is continuity within the album. That is a reprise of the previous song, Wait for Sleep. Mm. So let me fade out on this and play just the opening riff to Wait for Sleep. It's the same piano riff. Much less Snoopy in this one, though. Yeah. But yeah, so that's another thing, like, the thing that I like about Dream Theater is they make their albums, like, 
the whole album is important, right? The whole mm-hmm. album is its own work of art. It's not a collection of just individual songs. It is the album is the album, and there's yeah. continuity as you go through it. So, for the ending song to call back to a previous song is quite cool, and there are shared lyrics throughout some of these songs, yeah, and, and shared melodies and stuff like that. And they do that all the time in all of their albums. So, an actual and, concept, and it's like not concept album in that there's like a strong concept or a story that like is carried on throughout, but it's just like this whole album has its own identity and mm, the, all the okay, songs yeah, contribute yeah. to that identity. I get that. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really it for waiting, you know, images and words, uh, learning to live. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot there. <laughs> that's why I love, I, I love dream theater, man. There's just, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to appreciate about their dang music. So much. Will we be hearing from them again? Yes, we will. <laughs> Look forward to that. All right. But would you recommend images and words by yeah. dream theater? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. More so than their previous album that we talked about? I can't remember. That's fine. <laughs> I will so say I guess yes. I will say absolutely yes. Wait for sleep. If you if you want to get into Dream Theater, this is one of three albums that I would recommend. Images and Words. It's their oldest album, so it has a little bit of the nineties stuff, right? But it's mm-hmm. so dang good. So dang good. It's got everything from hard hitting Metallica riffs. Soprano saxophone, you know, ballads, epics. And Whitney Houston-esque notes. It's all there. And that is that. So let's talk about how the album was received. Okay. So on the back of Pull Me Under, Images and Words was a modest commercial success, reaching number 61 on the U.S. Billboard 200 charts. Um, It received widespread critical acclaim from both contemporary music critics and retroactive reviewers. This album is a, like monolith for like progressive metal and progressive rock okay um german magazine rock hard (laughs) named images and words album of the month and asserted that the band's skill style and versatility showed how dream theater are quote style transcending like no other band uh uk music magazine select was less receptive stating that quote if this was a book It'd be for the coffee table. Glossy, but not essential. Oh, dear. That's so mean. That's very mean. And he, he, wasn't, he wasn't sold on it. He thought it was pretentious, probably. Yeah. Maybe you're pretentious, UK magazine man. I think your bias is showing. Honey. I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, and in 2004, website Metal Storm called Images and Words, quote, a masterpiece and also a historic album because it brought something totally new to the, to the scene. This famous progressive metal sound that would become Dream Theater's signature. Yeah. And their only hit. (laughs) Right. Their greatest hit. (laughs) Um, Okay. And since we will be talking about Dream Theater again, spoilers, um, let me talk about the legacy of Images and Words, the album itself. Okay. In 2011, Images and Words was ranked number seven on Guitar World Magazine's top ten list of guitar albums of 1992. In 2013, Images and Words was voted by Loudwire readers as the best metal album of all time. Oh, wow. A lot of Dream Theater's fans in that, <laughs> in that poll, I assume. I, I was one of them. I remember voting in I'm that like, poll. Vote it up! Yeah. I don't... That's the thing. I, I feel like a lot of people would say it is absolutely not the best metal album of all time, but <laughs> it is in my heart. Uh, in 2015, the album was ranked first on website Prog Report's list of top 50 progressive rock albums from 1990 to 2015. Oh, cool. I will agree. It is probably, arguably, the best progressive rock album from 1990 to 2015. 
Um, and, I agree with you. <laughs> and in 2017, it was ranked 95th on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Metal Albums of All Time. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Good company, Rolling Stone. <laughs> Good job. Uh, in 2002, Dream Theater released a live album to its fan club called Taste the Memories in honor of Images and Words' 10th anniversary. Oh, gosh. So it was like demos and... Do you uh, know that because you were in the fan club? No, I was not in the fan club. <laughs> Actually, I, I didn't know about this demo album until doing research for the show. Oh. Yeah. You learn something new every day about your favorite band. <laughs> every day? Every day. <laughs> uh, carrying on the tradition of when Dream and Day reunite, which we talked about in our last Dream Theater episode, mm-hmm. uh, Dream Theater performed Images and Words in its entirety a handful of times in 2007 in honor of its 15th anniversary. Nice. Uh, they performed similar tributes on the 20th and 25th anniversaries, too. This is a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Those were just some boys back then. And where did Dream Theater go from here? Well, after the release of Images and Words, the band launched a two-year world tour to promote the album, which spawned a live album and a concert video release. Nice. When did they get rid of that producer that kept trying to knock, lock them out of the place? Probably the next album, because I think that that this is the only album where they had used those triggered snares. Yeah. And that is the story, that is where we'll leave off. And that leaves us to the end of the show. Who won? I'm too tired to fight you. Woo! Dream Theater, I agree. Dream Theater's be- like Bodyguard's fine, but Dream <laughs> like Images Words is a masterpiece. Don't come for me, kids. In the polls, support me that way. I'm so sleepy right now. So we're gonna give it to Dream Theater. They worked hard. They got a lot of real deep feels in there. They were the true queens of the night. They got great music, great lyrics. Great singing. <laughs> but albums cannot be judged on their music alone because... Without even seeing it, I know that Bodyguard is not is not it. It's I, just not it. She's talking about the album covers. So what we have done is we're going to compare the album covers and decide who had the better album cover. For the Bodyguard, can you describe that one for me? It is um, Rachel... Marin. Marin. <laughs> <laughs> It is uh, Rachel Marin in a black hood um, pulled up to her head, and she's holding one side of it with a gloved, bespeckled, black gloved hand. And in the background is just a t- a picture of Kevin of Costner. Kevin Costner tiled over and over again. It's just why I don't know why. So like the. The image of Whitney Houston in the hood is from the movie. There's a scene where yeah. she has to sneak into like a like club. a club. So she's she, got, before she sings Queen of the Night. Yeah, she's got a hood on to like hide her face, and you know she can take it off dramatically. The only time she's tried to hide her identity. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense to just have a still from the movie for the album cover. But why is there a bunch of pictures of it's Kevin Costner weird. holding a gun? It's real weird. It's so and that weird. gun is definitely like photoshopped in. <laughs> so yeah, it's just a weird looking album cover. That, that does look like a Photoshop gun. <laughs> Absolutely. It looks like they, like they tried to pose him like a Bond. If Kevin Costner wasn't so Kevin Costner, like that's what it was. It's like, what if James Bond was hired as a bodyguard for a singer and they fell in love? Ew, so Whitney's just a Bond girl? In a way. Blech. Like the beginning of the bodyguard is Kevin Costner having like a Bond standoff. Like he's a secret agent or something. I think I was making Ramyan when that was happening. All right. Anyway, you can scroll over. We've got the album Shereen cover for Theater. Images and Words, which is 
It is striking. Um, it's yeah, it's something. There's um there is a child in a nightgown. She's Little in girl. a nightgown. Um she is in a ornate room like you can they're big old like the molding is superb. Um uh, the sky or the the what is that the called? Ceiling? The ceiling is painted like the sky. Outside you see like moon and stars and galaxies i think there's a snitch in her room it's it's a that's a sparrow there's a sparrow in her room there's a burning heart floating in the middle of the room and she's got a big four-postered bed with red sheets and curtains and carved into the top is papa dominici's dream papa nichi's dream theater logo (laughs) so um this album art was created by larry Fremantle. And he was inspired by classic 70s album covers created by art design company Hypnosis, who had done things like they had done like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all like a bunch of classic album covers that were just very striking at the time. So Dream Theater was like, hey, can you make us something like that? And he used like an early version of Photoshop to Photoshop <laughs> elements. And that's what it looks like. Yeah, it, looks it definitely like, looks like that. It, it doesn't look painted. or It looks like early Photoshop. So it's a bunch of like weird elements all stitched together stitched but not like m- melded they yeah. don't they definitely just look like layers piled on top of each other right so they they all look like for they're coming from different sources and it's what it, all of the different elements in the room that this little girl standing in are meant to like represent lyrics from the songs they're legit not even lighted properly <laughs> like the they're not lit properly What's, it's like a collage it has the collage look yeah. So, like... Where's this... the light on this? But there's so much light on the side of this girl's face. Why isn't there any on the bed? So, like, you've got a sparrow in there because sparrows fall as a lyric from Pull yeah. Me Under. Wait for sleep. There's a big old bed. Yeah, it, it's... It's... It's iconic because it is the album cover for this album. But, like, objectively, it's not a very good album cover. No. Like, I really don't think so. It's very busy. Yeah. It's very busy and it doesn't it doesn't meld very well together. Yeah. So who won? Who has a better album cover? Like they're both they're both bad. They're both quite bad. Let's just can we just tie for bad? Call Not it, tie for win. Just call, call it a draw. Yep. Draw. J- draw for us. Uh, help us decide in 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 <laughs> our poll. poll on Twitter and on Instagram. I assume maybe maybe this is the best one. <laughs> it's her her Papa Nietzsche drawing. It's excellent. Okay, all right. So that is the that is the end of our show. <laughs> Want to uh, discuss it, runners up? Oh. Je- Jess is ready to go to sleep because the album is all about sleeping. I'm so tired, guys. It's a it's eleven fifty. You're waiting for sleep. I'm waiting for sleep and also some pop tarts because I've been hungry since eight. <laughs> um, but before we do that, let's discuss some runners up. Let's do it. Um, I I only had one runner up. Baby got back. It wasn't that. It was In Vogue's Funky Divas, which means I probably had two songs when we really delved deep. Maybe. But for you, you had three runners up. Iron Maiden's Fear of the Dark. Which is like Iron Maiden's return to form. We talked about Iron Maiden experimenting with electronic synthesized metal and synthesized rock in Mm -hmm. the 80s. This This and their previous album is them trying to be hard rock again. And Fear of the Dark is one of the greatest songs of all time. Uh, Rage Against Machines, Rage Against the Machine. Everybody knows Rage Against the Machine. Uh, <laughs> ex-Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan's favorite band. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine told Paul Ryan, 
you are the very machine we raged against. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a great, it's a great like irreverent punk rock political album. It's it's excellent. If you're know. into An- that kind angry, of thing. angst, smart, check that one out. Flowbots. That's not one of your own. <laughs> They're not even here yet. And then finally, Faith No More's Angel Dust. Faith No More's Angel Dust is also a very great. Like we talked about funk metal earlier. Uh, Faith No More is a great funk metal band. Nice. They're just as weird as Dream Theater can be. So <laughs> Faith No More Angel Dust is a high recommend as well. Yeah, give them a listen. I don't know. I've never heard a single song by them. That is not a challenge. <laughs> All right, so let's talk. Let's talk some plugs. I will help carry you through this one. You can follow us on Twitter at Media Made Show, and, and you can follow us on Instagram at Media Made Show. You can follow me at YouTube on YouTube channel. What is it? Media Made. No. <laughs> no, we don't have that. Do we? <laughs> no. Taming Tales <laughs> on YouTube. Just yeah. Jess likes to uh, do vlogs and write stories and draw pictures. Ah, uh, that's true. I do all those things. Maybe you'll see a Papanichi. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rod the Master. I have many things going on. I write for a Zelda website called ZeldaDungeon.net. We write all about the video game series The Legend of Zelda. Um, I also run a YouTube series about professional wrestling called Keep Kayfabe. That's K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. So if you like professional wrestling, you can check that out too. It's real good. Um, do us a favor, if you can, tell a friend about the show. Helps get the word out there. Um, you can also, hey, give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever your plot, your podcast platform is. Helps up visibility as well. So, hey, we appreciate you and your listenership. And we appreciate you taking this journey with us. Yeah. So we're going to close out this show with the end of Metropolis Part 1, The Miracle and the Sleeper. This is the song that Dream Theater ends most of its shows with, so we're going to end our show with it. Yeah. So with that, we appreciate you guys. We'll see you next time with the TV of 1992. Okay, kids, I'm going to be the sleeper. Peace, love to your dandelions. Dandelions.